0: Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you.
1: We came out and did what we wanted to do in the first half, second, second half. They
2: they picked up their defense and they, they made it harder on us to score. Um, and we weren't able to get the kind of the stops the way we were in the first half.
3: Oh, great! No,
4: I'm just uh, I, I hate sitting out. man. Yeah. I think that it's so tough. My mind is just constantly racing. When I'm watching,
5: you know, the guys out there and not out there. So um, just me to be out there, be you able know, to make a difference. So it's, like, the back
2: and forth of timeouts was just trying to see their alignment
5: and just see if we kind of knew what they were going. Obviously, we felt they would go to Tyson, but, you know, with Joey Hauser, with Hogard, you know, you have more than one option, right? You know, you have some, but when it gets late clock or a 1.8, which it was, you know, it's just going to be a catch and shoot. So you felt more like it was Tyson Walker, and we didn't do that good of a job. Um, We took Edie off. um, It went small. So I was going to, I wanted to keep Edie at the rim. Just in case something got, you know, a slip play, a lob play, and now all of a sudden you got a seven four guy that's not there to help you. And so they went small, and he really didn't have anybody to cover. So obviously with the low clock, we put him on the basketball, trying to make it hard. They still got a good shot.
6: We knew it would be a huge win for us with uh, the Big Ten standings, but ultimately going on the road uh, and setting our dominance is what we had to do. And then it coming out in the last second was just, I thought, good for us to get a little bit of that
3: experience, but also just a great team win to come out with that in such a tough 93.5 and 107.5, the fan.
2: And welcome to the Fan Midday Show from the drivehubler.com studio. Alongside Jimmy Cook and producer James Adams, my name is Brian Hammonds. And for those of you wondering, who in the heck is this guy? I've been out of the limelight for a little while, so I'll give you a brief introduction. Born and raised in Anderson, Indiana, went to Butler, was a uh, sports reporter and anchor at WRTV Channel 6. Did auto racing for ABC, NBC, ESPN, and various other networks. Uh, Was on the Indiana Pacers television broadcast for a couple of years. Uh, Three or four years, I guess. Uh, Was the first sports director at Fox 59 and then went to the Golf Channel, where for 21 years I was one of their lead broadcasters. And, fellas, today I have one goal, and that's to have a better day than the Dallas Cowboys kicker had last night
1: so Fra- help me help me out hold my hand and let's do this Brett Maher definitely set a bar high for you to be able to <laughs> you would have to mishandle and fumble about four or five segments here Brian to even get close to the suffering that Maher had although he did and I could be wrong on this he did eventually hit the fifth one right he or made no one he so did make so one. so you eventually got there as long as you end the day on a make hopefully that uh <laughs> that carries you into next weekend for a Cowboys team that with their tortured history the last 10 years or so, doesn't need any problems at that position uh, you, next week. You can laugh about it now, but had they lost oh. by a couple of points, it would have been a different story. Look, I was on the camp the last four or five months that I felt like Tom Brady was going to find some way to backdoor his way into an NFC Championship a game. They're going to be at home. They're going to be against the Cowboys. And as each one of those missed extra points, at least the first three, Buck, score here for a second. Things are going to get tight. Those extra points might matter. Brady and the Bucks never end up putting it together. They don't matter. But, uh, yeah, very stressful, I'm sure, bittersweet night for uh, Brett Maher as things uh, unfolded there. Yeah, Dallas wins that game
2: 31-14. And you look at – they're at a big disadvantage now. San Francisco, the Niners played on Saturday afternoon at home. And now Dallas plays on Monday night. They have to travel to San Francisco and play on Sunday afternoon. That's two full days of rest and and repair that the 49ers have on Dallas.
1: Maybe the NFLPA did make a bigger deal about this. I, I'm struggling to remember it offhand. but And you know about this in the world of, of, of media and media rights deals. But as everybody continues to want a hand in the cookie jar of the NFL... I get wanting to give ESPN a game. I get wanting to have the Manning cast on a wild card matchup and have every network that covers the league have a slice of the playoff pie. That's fine. But yeah, it's a massive disadvantage having to have a late night primetime game like that and then get one or two days less rest than the Niners did. And you got to go up to play them this weekend. So it's the risk reward of having a Monday night game. Did I hate it? Well, I as a fan, did I hate the idea of three days of wall-to-wall NFL coverage? No, but if I was on the Cowboys, to your point, I'd be talking to the Players Association about it. Hey, this is right. It's a no little question. tough. One hand tied behind her back this week in prep. No question. Now,
2: of course, the question everybody's answering, or is that the last game we'll ever see Tom Brady play? And you know, last night he looked his age. He's held off Father Time for a long time, but that dude is undefeated, and. Um, I, I don't want to see Tom Brady, and this is going to date me, I don't want to see him be Willie Mays stumbling around center field for the New York Mets. And that's might that might be what we see if he continues
1: to play. At this point for Brady, and I guess you could make the case it already started with him going to Tampa Bay, it is where, if I still want to play, where it gives me the best opportunity to win. It, unlike basketball, and I was too young for this, so if I'm being ignorant on this, you can... Cut me off. I was only five or six, but unlike basketball, where I'm sure when Michael Jordan returned to the Wizards, he still wanted to compete at a high level as the competitor that he was. But you can't really get beat up to the point of severe physical damage coming back to play in the back back end of your career, like Brady could if he goes to, let's say, the Raiders, for instance, who I think are further away than people think, and he's getting beat up by the AFC West six times a year. If he continues to play. To me, it has to be a spot where, like Tampa Bay, they're set to win a championship. Miami comes to mind. I don't know if New York is there yet. If this was two years down the line, I would say the Jets maybe. But there's a finite number of teams where if he wants to keep playing and compete at a high level, he can't be dropping back 50 or 60 times. They have to have complimentary pieces there with him to extend his career however long he wants to still play.
2: You mentioned Michael Jordan and the Wizards. You want to hear a funny story? Sure. I was invited for several years to play there was a the Celebrity Players Tour was, was in place, which was a golf tour for celebrities. Sure. Well, Dan Marino had one down in Weston, Florida, and he would always invite me. Now why I don't know. Evidently he considered me a celebrity. I know he was a big golf channel fan, he watched the golf channel all the time. So I went down and played. Uh, Several years. And one year we're coming back. My wife was with us and my caddy, who was a buddy of mine that lived in our neighborhood. We're coming back from a party after one of the rounds. And and uh, Charles Barkley jumps in our limo and we, you know, strike up a conversation and we get back to the hotel. And he says, hey, let's go down to the bar and have have a few drinks. So we're down there. We're having a few drinks. And he starts talking about "Hey, me and Michael are coming back at this time. Michael Jordan and Charles Barkley were both retired said, me and Michael are coming back. And I said, no, no, you're not. Look at you. I mean, he did not look like he does now, but right. he, he didn't look in shape. I said, you're not coming back. He said, no, I'm serious. We're coming back. We're going to play for the Washington Wizards. And I kept calling BS on that. And he gets his phone and calls Michael Jordan, who was in a casino in Gary, Indiana, no surprise, <laughs> and says, here. He said, I'm on the phone with Brian Hammonds from the Golf Channel. Tell him we're coming back. He hands me the phone, and Michael Jordan says, yeah, we're coming back. We're playing for Washington. And I'm sitting there, sitting. Nobody knows this. I'm sitting on the biggest story in sports, (laughs) biggest story in sports. Michael Jordan and Charles Barkley are coming back. They're going to play for the Washington Wizards, and I got no place to tell it. I mean, (laughs) I'm sitting there as a you know an old TV guy and you know a sports journalist. And that was the most frustrating thing. I was sitting on the biggest story in sports and
1: had no place to tell it. If uh, I know, I'm making you play with a lot of hypotheticals here. But uh, if technology was what it was today, how quick would you have been to? Yeah, that would have been. Yeah, that's a different story. (laughs) Now I will tell you this. You know, obviously we know what
2: happened with Michael Jordan, right? But Charles Barkley did quit after about a week of training camp. Right, right, (laughs) right. He wasn't. He wasn't in the kind of shape that he thought he was. No,
1: no, and that's. (laughs) I can't. I can't put myself in those shoes. But I. That's why people praise. And look back at those Wizard years, even though there are one no championships won, the fact that Jordan was able to put up the numbers that he did and be as competitive with an entire different generation of players is I mean, I can't imagine what that takes to get back into that. It takes a unique specimen to be able to do it. Yeah, yeah. Brady and MJ are the I guess LeBron kind of now as he continues to age. Like you there's only a handful of athletes that In either of those sports have shown they can still play and not just do it for money, but do it at a high level as well. And and, you know, getting back to Brady, you can do that now as a quarterback,
2: play as an older player because you can protect yourself so much.
1: Right, and the league has done such a – I mean, that's the main point of emphasis is protecting the quarterback at this stage of NFL officiating for sure.
2: You don't necessarily have to take a beating as a 45-year-old quarterback. You do like – well, Brady's gotten pretty good at it. Peyton was great at it. He sees the rush coming. He's down. He's not going to take a hit. Right.
1: And, and that's just, again, that's the cerebral, just high IQ of Brady and of Manning, and that's what makes it so fascinating is because they're still, and this isn't my account, right? This is what Troy Aikman said on uh, Scott Van Pelt last night, but I agree with them. It did look like the last three or four weeks of the season, Brady looked more like the Tom Brady that arrived there in 2020. It felt like he was playing more loose. He was playing more consistent, whether everybody was on the same page, whether it was all the off the field stuff, just kind of players, at least per Aikman's account, were saying that it, it, he, it felt different the final three weeks than it did the previous 14. So he's going to have a big decision. I take Tom Brady, uh, at least at this point, the way he talked to the media last night at his word, which is he's going to take some time well-deserved rest, then figure out what he wants to do. But yeah, at this point, I, I I hate the word mercenary, but yes, he's going to be a mercenary for a franchise that feels the closeness of a championship, but maybe they're a quarterback away. Well, for those players
2: that are contemplating retirement, it always comes down to this: they want to play, right? But do they do they have do they have the will to prepare again? Like they have to prepare to be able to play at that level.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's. I don't have a proper analogy for it, but the amount of whether you're a coach or a player, the amount of time that it takes, and I suppose on a smaller scale, broadcasters do it when they're preparing week in and week out. And anybody that's covering sports or working in sports knows the sacrifices that are made both on the family side and just the preparation that it takes. Obviously, one is an athletic competitor and the others are covering the sport itself, but yeah, it's a massive time commitment. It's not just getting back in the weight room or staying physically fit. It is mentally and the NFL season, even though it's not as long as baseball or not as long as basketball, it's equally as grueling. And the amount that you have to compress into one week almost almost has that same impact of 182 game season. So, yeah, it's a lot to ask a 45 year old that is going through stuff off the field is the hunger still there? Does he want to play? And then where does he want to play? Because, in my mind, it's it's warm climates or or, or domes at this point for wherever a forty-five-year-old Tom Brady <laughs> wants to play next year. Yeah, no question. Well, switching gears a little
2: bit, Purdue played yesterday at Michigan State, and um, you know came up. That was a really really entertaining physical. Grinded out big 10 game i really enjoyed that of course they win 64 63 zach eddie scored half (laughs) of Purdue's points he didn't play uh, he missed a lot of shots i mean because he doesn't shoot
1: outside four feet but uh man that the guy is unstoppable if he has any type of size mismatch or any type of just advantage in the post he is the quite literally i tweeted this last night he is quite literally the biggest cheat code in college basketball because there's just nothing you can do inside of 5 feet it's over he 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 feels the same way uh, i'll i'll bring up a, a a butler legend that i know you'll appreciate uh, people always praised He's a way better player in terms of the accolades. People always praised Matt Howard for his ability to feel weight distribution and win matches in the post, and he was an undersized big. Zach Eady is a full-size big that has that same ability to feel where the defender is and then quickly, with his lateral movement, get up for a nice shot inside. The back and forth of that game, though, to your point, Brian – And I'm not saying I haven't felt this way all year, but maybe it's because it's 2023 now and we're only two months away from March Madness. It had that second weekend feel back and forth. Haymakers left and right. Tyson Walker drops 30 for Michigan State. Had almost every answer offensively. It was a beautiful, just like you said, Big Ten basketball stretch, but just... Second weekend type of March Madness feel that I, I loved every second of.
2: And I thought that Walker shot with one point eight to
1: go. I thought that was going down because he didn't miss.
2: No, he no. hadn't missed the whole second half. It seemed like the the interesting strategy I thought from Tom Izzo. You know, let's play, let's play Edie one on one. We're not going to double and make everybody else beat him. Beat and, and it almost worked because if yeah. Fletcher Lawyer didn't have the game the second half that he had right. finishing with seventeen points, it would have worked.
1: Yeah, and and I think that. Look, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit here and and, and fully criticize the Tom Izzo so game plan. I I was yelling at my TV for a double to be had on that last possession when they let uh, Edie go one on one, but at the same time, you have to trust your guys at some point to make a play defensively. Even though Edie's has about six or seven inches there, and it was a great play because Edie's just so quick to go, and that entry pass was insane as well. But just to gather that pass, turn and score with about two seconds left. I mean, it. Matt Painter continues to get the praise that he rightfully deserves, and I understand he has a he has a good group this year. But they weren't picked like they were a year ago to be the immediate front runners in the Big Ten. They were near the top, but the fact that the only losses to Rutgers, they're still top of the conference, and they survived a trip to East Lansing. Purdue continues to impress on a nightly basis. So, if what I just heard you say is that you were rooting against Purdue, now you're. I have you're IU, IU, I have IU guy, loyalty, right? yeah. so I won't I won't lie to the listening audience. There is times where and I blame, uh, I blame the Purdue fans in my life because they give it back and we give it back. It's a shared, it's a shared hate relationship for sure. Uh, our executive producer, Todd Meyer, often gives me rubbings whenever uh, IU is uh, in the tank or whenever they're struggling. So yes, I'd be lying if occasionally I'm not rooting for uh, some heartbreak at West Lafayette. But that being said, I still appreciate high-quality basketball play. I have the utmost respect for Coach Painter and company. And... They're they're a fun team to watch. They're they're a fun team on a nightly basis, as is the whole Big Ten. My
2: youngest daughter went to Purdue, and I've always been a fan of the Purdue athletic program, maybe because it goes back to my days doing local TV here. They were really easy to deal with. I mean, when I had my choice to go with IU or Purdue back in the glory days, if you will, in the tournament, I would always choose Purdue because I could tell Gene Cady, hey, can you be in the lobby at 615 so I can do a live shot with you? <laughs> yeah, no problem. I wouldn't get that same answer sure, from Bob sure. Knight. So I always chose to travel with Purdue. Now, I, I, you know, I, I like IU. My son went there. Uh, my other daughter went to Butler. So we spread, spread all over the place. But uh, I like the Purdue program. I re- and I love watching this team play.
1: Yeah, me, me too. The uh, to to clarify that most of our listeners know this, but uh, I, I often get the reversible jacket jabs because my grandfather went to Notre Dame, my dad went to Butler, and I chose to go to Indiana. But I grew up with all these split fanhoods. So yes, I I there there are many cross points of my childhood fanhood where Purdue was on the other side of the field, right? Notre Dame and Purdue always had great uh, matchups on the gridiron. Uh, the crossroads classic of course meant a lot to our household in general having those four schools there and then iu and purdue rivalry as old as time so yeah there there, there is is some still by inherent growing up of a purdue angst for sure but at the same time they do it as well if not better than anybody in the country and matt painter is as kind with his time but also as well managed of any organization in the Big Ten for sure. To hear Matt Painter interviewed, and I love hearing him
2: interviewed because you learn something every time you hear him interviewed. I mean, I'm not talking about the kind you get on television where a nice win, coach, way to go, but you know the lengthy interviews that he does, like on radio shows or whatnot. Uh, I he's just so insightful. And you you always learn something when Matt Painter is interviewed. We're going to talk a lot more about Purdue basketball coming up later on. Rob Blackman will join us at 1230. And, of course, the Colts are very much in the news as they continue to look for their next head coach. Uh, Joel A. Erickson will join us at 1 o'clock to talk about the Colts. Nick Gardner will join us at 130 to talk about tonight's uh, uh, Butler game. Uh, They're at home with Creighton tonight. They lost to Creighton by 22 points in Creighton. Back in December, hopefully that gets turned around tonight. And tonight is uh, Project 44 night at Hinkle House as they continue to honor the legacy of Andrew Smith and encourage uh, people to, uh, donate to donate bone marrow in his honor. And then Tony East will join us at 2 o'clock. We'll talk about the Pacers who lost for the fourth straight time yesterday. That's three in a row without uh, Tyrese Halliburton. There's an important stretch of games coming up for this Pacers team that could really decide whether or not they're in the playoffs this year.
1: Yeah, we were talking with Pat Bowen about that yesterday, and there have been times, very, very small sample size, when without Tyrese Halliburton, the Pacers have still been able to get some of their best wins of the season, but obviously losing a player like that for any extended period of time is going to test everybody else. Uh, Having Miles Turner back last night was massive, even though just defensively they had a lot of holes in the second half Rick Carlisle spoke as much to that but they have crossed every bridge against Eastern Conference contenders at this point, Brian, with green checks pretty much throughout, and then you're on the road against Milwaukee. The fact that Giannis wasn't out there and you still got pounded in the second half is a little tough to swallow, but at the same time, even if they do fall, let's say, out of sorts and their tied on this road trip is 1-3 or, let's say, oh and 4 the East still has enough wiggle room between... The 7-10 to seeds where they can make up the ground whenever Tyrese comes back. However, it changes a little bit the conversation on this team of how far ahead of schedule are they. And that was the debate when they first went on the winning streak. Was they're a mid-pack seed right now? They're near the 4-6 to line. Are they really this good? Are they ahead of schedule? And without Tyrese Halliburton out there, it's hard to make a true answer to that question. If you want to join our conversations, uh, give us a call
2: 239 Now, the worst thing you can be in the NBA is mediocre. Yes, you know to be a yeah, we're a playoff team, but we got bounced in the first round. We're not in the lottery. We're no we're no better next year. And that's that's guy. Kind of, I don't like doing this, but you kind of root for the Pacers not to make the playoffs so they can get better for
1: next year. I had that. Viewpoint to start the season because I legitimately thought it was going to be a year where, like their over over under win total was twenty three and a half, and I felt like that number was going to be about right. And you bet They're, the over. Uh, <laughs> I wish I was that confident. I bet the under. Did you uh, really? I did, because I thought they were going to have a bad year. Yeah. Um, and they are a win away from eclipsing that mark already, and it's only January seventeenth. So that bet's going to lose for me, but I'm happy about it because the Pacers at the time were more fun. Than they've been in about three years or so, and I'm not. Asking for that to change, but the worst thing in my mind that could happen to your point is if they are a 10 playoff seed or so this year, they just barely squeak in and they are not in the same position to have a higher draft pick than they would be if they are where I thought they were going to be this year. Mm -hmm. That being said, not actively rooting for that because when Tyrese Halliburton is out there, they have proven to me and proven, I think, to a lot of the league. They are a young team on the rise. And Kevin Pritchard, I think, got a lot of people's trust back, not in the organization, they trust him, but maybe the fan base with how well he hit on this past year's draft. That entire rookie class has shined across the board.
2: Yeah, I, 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 they're fun to watch. I mean, I love watching this team play, but they're not a championship-level no. team yet. No. And they're going to need to to get other pieces to become that. And to get those pieces, you're not going to get free agents no. come in here. It no. just doesn't happen. Uh, it ain't Miami, it's not New York, it's not Chicago, it's not L.A. Uh, so you're not going to get free agents, so you're going to have to build through the draft. And you, and you can only really build through one of the top picks in the draft.
1: And that's why it's like this with where I was with the Colts early on this season, to to draw from both sports. There are certain levels of purgatory, to your overall point, in both sports, where if you're a, a, like a—let's say, take the the Titans, for instance, right? The Titans were— in the AFC South race for pretty much the whole year. They just miss out and they have a worse pick than their counterpart in Indianapolis right now. I thought Indianapolis was going to be Tennessee for a long time. They were going to be right there. They weren't going to be bad enough to be a top pick. They weren't going to be good enough to be a true contender. That's where you don't want this Pacers season to go. I want one or the other over these next two weeks for the trade deadline so that at that point they can identify where are we realistically this year. Are we making, because they do have key players that they have to make decisions on,
0: particularly Miles Turner, are we moving him? Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you.
1: And accepting the fact that we still have one more year in the lottery before where we're at, or are they trying to extend Miles, keeping the core intact and trying to compete now from what i'm hearing from people
2: in the organization they want to keep miles and they want to keep buddy heel yes because buddy he was a foregone conclusion he wasn't going to be here right but they love this guy he can play, and I guess from what I from what I hear, he is great in the locker room. He's great for these young players. He holds people accountable, which is just the opposite of what Malcolm Brogdon did last <laughs> right, year. Right. And I'm hearing this, like I say, from inside sure. the organization. So, but it, it'll be interesting to see if they're able to do that. Now, Miles is a free agent. It's basically up to him. Right. I mean, they've already made an offer to him, and he's turned it down. Uh, I, I can't see I can't see the Pacers offering him max money, but somebody out there might.
1: And my and we talked about this uh, Scott Pollard was in here last week and he referenced the chemistry aspect of the locker room and how you're not going to move this right now or mess away with it because the winning is happening and and everybody appears at least on the service value to really like each other and he, he you know kind of built on or drew back on his experiences in locker rooms like that that were healthy where everybody was a true brotherhood and that kind of thing. so you're you don't want to blow it up necessarily. But, and he agreed with me on this point, when you switch to the business side of things, again, I'm not advocating to trade Miles Turner, but you have three weeks to figure out if he is a piece that's going to stay here long term because you can't afford him to walk no, in June. No, You got to get something for Yes, walk. yes.
2: All right, Rob Blackman is going to come our way next to talk more about the Purdue Boilermakers, 17-1, and 6-1, and, and leading the Big Ten. And if you want to join us, call us at 317-239-1070. I'm Brian Hammonds, along with Jimmy Cook and our producer, James Adams. You're listening to The Fan Midday Show.
3: 93.5 and 107.5, The Fan.
2: Today's show. I'm Brian Hammons, along with Jimmy Cook. We're in the DriveHugler.com studio, and as we mentioned earlier, the Purdue Boilermakers moved to 17 and one, six and one in the Big Ten. They lead the way in that conference, beating Michigan State yesterday, 64-63. And joining us now is the radio voice of the Purdue Boilermakers, Rob Blackman. Rob, thanks for joining us.
5: Brian, one question for you. Uh oh am i on the invite list for your golf outing
2: this spring absolutely you are can you bring zach edie with you i'd like to see him play golf
5: oh well you know he was a heck of a pitcher and a hockey player before he uh, hit the seven foot plateau so yeah maybe i can talk him to doing that too how are you guys doing
2: Good, good. Now, you know, every game, every road game, I think, okay, this is the one that Purdue's going to lose. Because, you you know, they've, they've played in some pretty hostile environments. At Ohio State, the Palestra was a great environment. Yesterday at the Breslin Center. Yet they just keep piling up road wins. It's been very impressive.
5: Yeah, you're right. 5-0 and in true road games this year. And, and we do include that game of the Palestra as a road game because it, it was a true road environment um you're right uh and i and i'm like you brian i I find myself going into these games thinking well this is probably the game we're going to get tripped up here and i certainly thought that would be the case at michigan state yesterday just because uh that's just kind of what happens at the breslin center that's an awfully tough place to play now purdue did catch a little bit of a break when we found out malik hall was not going to play yesterday for michigan state but Look, the fact of the matter is, uh, Purdue is not only winning road games, uh, as I mentioned, 5-0 and in, in true road games, the only team in high major basketball that can, that can claim to be 5-0 and in true road games, but they're also, what I like about it, Brian and Jimmy, what I really like is they're winning one-possession games, and the games that are coming right down to the wire. Beat Ohio State on the road in a one-possession game, uh, beat Nebraska in a very hostile environment, and overtime in a one-possession game. They went a one-possession game yesterday, obviously, against Michigan State. Um, so I, I, to me, I, I'm just as excited about the fact that Purdue's finding a way to win these one-possession games that come down to ultimately what are literally the final play of the game. Uh, they're finding a way to win those games. Uh, and that, uh, that that's probably what has me even more excited than the fact that Purdue's winning these road games.
1: Rob, to your point about handling those one-possession games, uh, somebody asked Matt Painter yesterday post-game about – chess match-like play against another cerebral head coach in Tom Izzo and, and just how the last moments of that game unfolded. He referenced the fact that you know he's won every which way, he's been beaten every which way as well. Uh, from your vantage point, what was it like taking in that chess match and as you saw things operate down the stretch in what turned out to be a duel between Edie and Walker in a way?
5: Yeah, and that, that's the thing, Jimmy, is it, is it, it was Edie and Walker – uh, and that made it a lot of fun just as a fan of college basketball to watch those two guys do their thing. Zach, I know, had 32 and 17, and and Walker, I think, ended up with 30. And so it was no surprise at the end of the game, both teams were going to throw the ball to their best player. And when you knew that, look, everyone in the building, including Tom Izzo, knew that ball was going into Zach Eadie, and he delivered. And I think everyone in the building knew on the final shot of the game that Tyson Walker would be taking that shot from Michigan State. And why not? That guy had been red hot. But that was a big, you know, that was a fun part of it. The thing, too, you talk about the chess match. You think about this now. These are the two most veteran coaches in our league. Now, Tom's been there 28 years. Matt's been there 18. So, that that's a lot of game film. Uh, that's a lot of scouting reports that have been put away in the filing cabinets on each other. Uh, so, when these two guys play one another, there really are no secrets. I mean, you know exactly what it's going to take to beat these guys. I, I made the comment with Matt when I did our pregame interview for the show yesterday I said something to the effect of, you know, I've been on the broadcast crew for 18 years, and every time that we have played Michigan State in the last 18 years, the pregame chat with you is always centered around rebounding and keeping Michigan State at a transition offense. That has never changed. In 18 years, that has never changed. And wouldn't you know it, yesterday, Michigan State actually out-rebounded Purdue, which Purdue is the number one rebounding team in the country, plus 12 a game. got out-rebounded by Michigan State, yet still found a way to win. Um, But to your original point, yes, it's a great chess match to watch. Yes, the X's and O's between the two coaches are great, not only because they're the two most veteran coaches in the league, but because there are no secrets between these two. When you've played each other as long as they've been playing one another, now 18 straight years, two times a year, sometimes three times a year, uh, it it doesn't come down to to secrets or, or trick plays or anything like that. It just comes down to who can weather the storm and hang in there the longest and find a way to win and, and that's what
2: Purdue did yesterday. I thought Tom Izzo's defensive strategy was interesting. He let Edie get his. He never doubled didn't double much at all. Yeah. It was Usually one on one in the post and tried to shut everybody else down. And if it wasn't for Fletcher Lawyer, that would have worked.
5: Yeah, and I do, I think if you're if you're Tom Izzo and his staff, you probably are saying the same thing. Uh, if if that's a big if, but if Fletcher Lawyer doesn't get going, uh, that 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 works out just 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 peachy, and you win that game. Michigan did the same thing against Travion Williams, I think it was three years ago, Brian, uh, where they chose not to double in the post. They just played him one-on-one, and Travion had a 30-point game, but Michigan won because Purdue, quite frankly, had no one else offensively. It was giving Purdue any type of a punch, so that strategy worked. Um, So I was a little surprised that that's what Michigan State chose to do with Sissoko yesterday. As you said, they played... I don't know how many possessions in the post. Probably ninety percent of them, where they just played singled up against Zach and let him get his. Um, but it was it's, it's such a you know a sharp contrast to what Purdue had seen Friday against Nebraska, when Nebraska was bringing two, sometimes three guys at Zach and making others beat them. You know that was their philosophy: was we're going to triple team you in the post and we're going to dare somebody else to make shots. So, which Fletcher made shots in that game as well. <laughs> so, uh, I, I, I guess I'm interested to see if not only. For the you know the final thirteen games of the regular season, Brian. But even into the postseason, what are teams going to do? What will be their defensive approach to Purdue? Will they go single up on Zach Eady and just say, "Hey, we're going to let him get his thirty points and, and fifteen rebounds, and and hope to gosh that the other guys don't make shots?" Uh, or will they double the ball and get him out of, get him out of his hands? The good news for Purdue and more specifically Zach Eady, he, he's seen both ends of the spectrum and everything in between. So I don't think there's anything that's going to fool him the rest of the way, rest of the way this season. He, he's seen it all. Literally, when you say throw the kitchen sink at Zach Eady, he literally has the kitchen sink. It's been thrown at him this year, and he's responded pretty well uh, in all of those games.
2: As Purdue goes through the Big Ten for the second time, do you think teams will switch up, you know, thinking, well, that didn't work the first time. Let's try something else.
5: Yeah, I think it all comes, uh, Brian, I think it comes down to personnel, you know, and what uh, – with a lot of teams, you know, for, for instance, we're going to play Minnesota uh, on Thursday, uh, and they do not have a lot to offer uh, as far as size. I mean, Trayton Thompson, I think 6'11", but he's like 215 pounds. Um, other than that, I don't know. I know Dawson Garcia, I think they list him at 6'10", maybe, but he's he's not a low post player. I think it's going to come down to, Brian, how many big guys do you have on your roster? um even seldom used guys we saw that yesterday with cooper i mean you, know, you got to play six minutes a game for michigan state rarely gets in the game tom is always using him a bunch uh just because he's a big body he actually is is big enough physically to at least stand next to zach edie and looks like he, you know look like he kind of belongs i mean no one really looks like you belong next to zach edie at seven four three hundred pounds but um so i think it comes down to personnel and just how many how many big bodies do you have on your roster? If you have enough that you think you can just keep throwing big guys at Zach and try to wear him down, uh, then God bless you. I'd say go for it. But if you're a smaller group that uh, that's just not going to be an option, um, then you're, you're probably just going to go single up in a post, let Zach get his, and just stay tight with all the other shooters. And, and again, as I said earlier, just hope that Purdue has a bad shooting night.
1: Rob Blackman, nice enough to take some time for us via the Mower Shop and Fishers hotline and themowershop.com for all your residential and commercial mowers, as well as power tools, equipment, snow snowblowers, lawnmowers, so much more. They will covered at the Motor Shop and Fishers and themowershop.com. Rob, switching away from Purdue for a second, I got a couple uh, texts about this, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on it as you are our our, our resident college basketball uh, pulse outside of Nick Gardner a little bit later today. But uh, Jeff Goodman just reporting that Northwestern's game at Iowa tonight postponed. Uh, only six players available for the Wildcats due to COVID. Uh, just your thoughts on that and, and that still being very much prevalent, uh, not just within the Big Ten, but within college athletics as a whole.
5: Uh, I got to tell you, it caught me off guard there, Jimmy. I had not seen that. Um, and I am very surprised, not only, A, to hear that information, uh, but, B, to think that uh, that we're still having a concern with COVID. Um, I mean, I'm trying to think back to even the, the, the COVID season, I think Purdue, if I remember correctly, only missed one game. I think Nebraska did not come to West Lafayette that year because of COVID. If I remember correctly, that was the only game Purdue missed uh, on the schedule. uh, That that was originally scheduled. Um, And that was actually in the height of COVID. So the fact that we are a couple years removed and we're still having this concern, um, yeah, I don't know. Man, I hate to see that because I thought that was – maybe I'm naive, I suppose I am, but I thought that was behind us. Uh, And what really, if I'm just looking at it, quite frankly, from a strictly a basketball standpoint, Big Ten standpoint, um, that's bad news for Northwestern because they have a chance to get to the NCAA tournament. They really have a good. Chris has a really good team this year. They really guard, uh, and they have a chance to do some real damage here and and have a type of team that can get to an NCAA tournament. So, I am hopeful that this is a short-term thing here and they can get everybody healthy again, just from strictly a basketball standpoint. Northwestern has a chance to be really good this year.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with you on that front. And just to kind of piggyback off that, Rob, I I don't I don't think you're naive. I I kind of felt the same way. But I mean, I guess when you get down to, man, only six players available, there's only there's only so much you can do. Whether it's COVID or whether it's a flu blog. if you have. Only six players available when you're a team, like you said, with Northwestern that has a lot on the line as the Big Ten season continues to unfold. Uh, they are moving that game it, it per Jeff Goodman. It is tomorrow, not tonight now. Um, but, yeah, okay. still still okay. just a, uh, a, a crazy headline in general. Seeing only six players available. And then when you find out it's COVID, it's. Like you said, the whole thing comes 180 for sure. That's some pretty quick healing, isn't it? i canceled it today, but we're going to play tomorrow. Just
5: one night later. Now, are we sure that's COVID or maybe just a couple of you guys have the stomach
2: flu really? to make sure they're ready to play? Rob, you know, when you at the beginning of the season, you think, okay, Purdue starting two freshman guards. Your expectations couldn't have been that high. How surprised are you at how well Braden Smith and Fletcher Lawyer have played?
5: Well, I am surprised. Uh, However, um, and I've mentioned this numerous interviews I've done. uh, Yet again, I refuse to listen to the head coach, Matt Painter, who was telling us all summer, we're going to be just fine. We're going to be just fine. I was one of the many fans pushing the panic button saying, oh, what do you mean? There's no way. There's no way we can do this with two freshmen, uh, true freshmen in the backcourt. And yet, once again, Coach Painter knew exactly what he was talking about. Granted, he gets to see those guys every day in practice. Uh, he knew what he was getting himself into. Uh, but, yeah, surprise, yes. Uh, if I'd have been a better listener this summer, then I, maybe I wouldn't have been surprised. But, I mean, you just look at some of the numbers, Brian. And, I, I, of course, I had to put some stats together for the game yesterday. But, I mean, Fletcher Lawyer is shooting 44%, I think, in Big Ten play from three. He's averaging like 17 points a game in, in Big Ten games only from three. Uh, Braden Smith, you know, forget the fact that he's you know almost 10 points, five rebounds a game, which is pretty amazing for a guy that's six feet tall to get five rebounds a game. But you know, he's at 44 percent from three uh, on the season. So both have been more than capable shooters. And the other thing I like about him. Is it's not like they're getting their numbers against the really bad teams, right? Sometimes we see freshmen have some really big games early in the season, when you're bringing in those uh, mid majors for guarantee games, and then once the Big Ten play begins, then they, they really start to they really start to slough off. But I mean, Fletch had 27 Friday against Nebraska. He had 20 earlier in the year against Minnesota. He had, I think, he had 18 against Duke. I mean, 18 against Duke as a true freshman. Uh, and the same thing, really, for Braden. I mean, his best games have come against uh, Ohio State and Marquette, who's a top 25 team, and, and Gonzaga. He was like 14.7 assists against Gonzaga. So that's probably what amazes me to boast, uh, the most about those two guys. Not the fact that – well, yes, the fact that they are putting up some pretty monster numbers, but they're doing it against really good competition. Uh, their, their numbers aren't tailing off now that Big Ten play has begun. So – that's probably what I've enjoyed the most about watching those two guys do uh, do their thing out on the floor.
1: Rob, I had uh, one more question for you on my front, and then I wanted to clarify something. Uh, the way Jeff Goodman worded his second tweet threw me off. So, just to clarify, I guess, know we chuckled about it a second ago. It is still postponed. He was cor- he says game is tomorrow, not tonight. I thought he was saying the game has been moved to tomorrow, not tonight. He was correcting okay. his original tweet. So, the game is tomorrow but it's still postponed due to the six players. So there's been no rescheduling of that game. I just want to clarify that. That's still That's up in the air for yeah. when that'll be replayed. The last question I had on your front was when you're on the doorstep of a final four, a couple of years ago, you know, obviously the mountain is always going to be bigger and bigger for Matt Painter and company. So I know they're not, you know, hanging their hat necessarily on a win against Michigan state. They'll enjoy it, but there's other goals they want to achieve. What, if anything, at this point, Robin, I know you're going to get this question over the next couple of weeks, is different or does anything feel different about this group compared to the last couple of years where there's been new heightened levels of expectation for Purdue basketball to some extent?
5: Uh, I do. I feel like this group is just a little bit more cohesive than maybe some of, some of the other groups uh, we have had in the past. And that's not a knock on the other groups uh, the other groups maybe didn't need, need quite as much cohesiveness because they had a star player or two um, that could be, you know, could be the alpha male and everyone else just kind of played their role. Uh, now, look, Zach Eadie's a star player. I mean, he's he's certainly a front runner for national player of the year, but he has a really, really good supporting cast surrounding him. And not just the guys we've already talked about in, in Lawyer and uh, Braden Smith, but uh, gosh darn, Caleb First has really played at a high level. What a compliment he's been as a low post presence with Zach down there. Mason Gillis off the bench has played extremely well uh, for this team. Ethan Morton, who rarely scores, rarely shoots, has been so good defensively. It just feels like cohesively, like all the pieces are in place, if that makes sense to you. Um, and it's not just one star player that has to do all the heavy lifting for you. Certainly, it felt like Jaden Ivy had to do that last year for Purdue to be at an elite level. And obviously, he's the number four pick in the NBA draft. So, yes, he, he was an elite player. Uh, he kind of felt like Carson Edwards had to do that at times for Purdue. It just feels like this group just has a little bit more cohesiveness to it. Now, look, 13 games left in the regular season. Maybe a month from, that, month from now, I'm singing a different tune. But at least at this point in the year, right, as we're closing in here at the end of January – uh, There's just a lot to like about this team, and I think cohesiveness is where I'd probably start with uh, as the number one thing that I like the most.
2: Rob, I don't envy Matt Painter, or I guess any college basketball coach for that matter these days, because you got to keep players happy. And when you look at players like Trey Kaufman, Wren, Brandon Newman, especially Kaufman Wren, though, how because they these guys can transfer at the drop of a hat. And they, tomorrow they could say I'm in the portal. How, how can you keep those players happy when those guys could be starting in a lot of different programs?
5: And Matt has said that. As a matter of fact, Matt said that in the post game yesterday. He felt like he feels like he really has a, a you know a nine man rotation where all nine are potential starters could be starters, and he wouldn't have a problem with that. I have heard Coach Painter answer this question, Brian. So I'm going to basically uh, mimic what he has said, and that is you can get out in front of that kind of stuff. In the recruiting process, and which is which is what Kirk Painter and his staff do a really good job of. They identify guys early in the recruiting process that not only can Purdue help win games on the floor, but they're going to help you win games when they're not on the floor, right? Guys are going to buy into the system. And look, there will be transfers. Uh, this past season, uh, look at Eric Hunter Jr. playing at Butler. Look at Isaiah Thompson playing down in Florida. Um, so there's always going to be transfers. But for the most part, when you recruit guys that you know are going to be system guys and that Purdue, Purdue's success is their number one goal, right? Not their individual success, but they want to win because they want Purdue to win. If those are the guys you're recruiting, then you're probably going to be in pretty good shape when it comes to, to uh, having you know multiple transfers. Does Trey Kaufman-Wren want to be playing more? Obviously, yes, he does. I mean, he's the Gatorade National Player of the Year as a junior. Think about that. As a junior in high school, he was the Gatorade National – or pardon me, the High School Player of the Year. Um, so, yeah, does Brandon Newman want to be playing more? Of course he does. Um, but uh, as long as you have a bunch of guys, as I said, who winning is the number one goal, then you're probably going to be in pretty good shape. And that, that's the kind of team that Matt and his staff have put together. But again, that starts in recruiting, right? You can't find that out the hard way after the fact. Uh, you, you need to identify that up front. And, and for the most part, over the years, Coach Painter and his staff have done that.
2: Well, Rob, it's certainly been a great, fun team to watch so far this year. 17-1, and 6-1 and one in the Big Ten. I know you're having a good time this year broadcasting those games. And uh, you will be getting an invitation for my charity golf event in June. So uh, I, don't, I can't remember the exact date, but I'll send you an invitation, believe me. Thanks well, for joining us. One of, the,
5: one of the most fun things I had on my calendar last, uh, last summer, so I look forward to the invitation, Brian. Thank
2: you. Thanks for joining us. Rob Blackman, the radio voice of the Purdue Boilermakers, and they are so much fun to watch. When we come back, joining us at the top of the hour, we'll talk Colts. Joel A. Erickson, the Colts insider for the Indianapolis Star. You are listening to the Fan Midday Show.
0: Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200mg at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. 93.5
3: and 107.5 The Fan.
2: And we're back on the Fan Midday Show. I'm Brian Hammonds along with Jimmy Cook and our producer, James Adams. And coming up at the top of the hour, we'll have Joel A. Erickson, the Colts insider for the Indianapolis Star, to talk about their coaching search and other things regarding the Indianapolis Colts. And one thing we do know now, that Jim Harbaugh is not going to be the next coach of the Colts. Uh, he, it was kind of a cryptic uh, text yesterday, but it sounds like he's staying at Michigan
1: yeah and that official a couple official statements for michigan as well indicated the same it, for me and we talked about this yesterday that my hope for the colts that they were going to go into build it from the ground up mode maybe not tear tear everything down but truly have a build from the ground up i want somebody experienced that's done it before in the nfl that's done it at a high level harbaugh and sean payton were at the top of that list for me i know they were for others as well Sean Payton has shown no indication, at least in his public interviews. He's mentioned a lot of teams, hasn't mentioned the Colts (laughs) for whatever reason, whether that's intentional or just on accident. Either way, he's not given any indication, and the Colts haven't set up an interview yet with him. Harbaugh, they didn't set up an interview with him either, but the thought was there's Colts ties there. He wants to get back into the pro game. At least that was the presumed thought. And now for that to be shut down... As you look at this Colts coaching search, it appears you're going to go in the way of coordinator that's looking for his first bite at the apple, which I don't hate. I just kind of lean more towards I'd rather have an offensive mind at the helm than a defensive mind. The One thing I read last week that I
2: thought was interesting, it was an interview with uh, someone who has coached with Jim Harbaugh previously. And he said that Harbaugh is only as good as his staff because he's not an X and O guy. He's not a scheme guy. He doesn't bring a lot to the table in that regard. But he... But he has to have a great staff around him to be successful.
1: And it was that quote just at the across the board, or at the professional level? From what they saw during his well, time in San Francisco, that's interesting because you see more and more now, particularly these young minds, coaches that that want to be as hands-on as possible with it. And I feel like when you're trying to build that relationship between new quarterback and new head coach you want a level of hands-on access, particularly if you're bringing in somebody that has experience working with quarterbacks specifically, like Ben Johnson um, out there uh, in Detroit. Uh, obviously, he doesn't have the background for it, but Eric Bieniemy in Kansas City works with Mahomes. He's a running back coach, though. So that, that's an interesting aspect of that for sure. Two three nine ten seven zero. if you want to get
2: on the conversation when we come back at the top of the hour, Joel A. Erickson will join us to talk about the Colts coaching search. Stay with us on the Fan Midday Show.
3: 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan.
1: Welcome back to the Fan Midday Show. Coming to you live from the drivehubor.com studios. Jimmy Cook, Brian Hammonds, coming to you. James, Had- James Adams behind the ones and twos. We talked a little bit earlier, including that last break, about where the Colts head coaching search currently lies after the reports and statements from Michigan that Jim Harbaugh intends to come back. To coach the Wolverines next season, we turn our attention now to Colts beat reporter and insider for the Indy Star, Joel A. Erickson, nice enough to take some time with us. Joel, you had a piece a couple days ago, uh, or actually today rather, uh, regarding the Colts coaching search and how the fronts have kind of quieted a bit for the two big names, both with Jim Harbaugh and with Sean Payton. Where did that news take you at all yesterday, in terms of the pulse of the Colts situation as they continue to navigate through interviews for their next head coach?
7: Well, it at the very least it kind of clarified those situations because um, with Harbaugh, you know, there had been a lot of line drawing speculation, whatever you want to call it, that had sort of said this is going to be the guy, um, you know, the, the guy to watch in this search. But there hadn't been really much in the way of hard. Uh, evidence of that since since the start of the search, there hadn't been any reports. He'd report he'd been reported to have talked to Tepper in Carolina. Obviously, there was plenty of of reporting uh, that linked him to Denver, but there hadn't really been anything hard linking him to the Colts, and so it just sort of took the specter out of it because we've been obviously tracking who they've been interviewing, uh, who, who they've requested to interview. His name never came up in any of that stuff, and you started wondering. You know, every everyone obviously drew this this very obvious line from Ursae to Harbaugh. But, but is it really uh, – is, is, is he really a factor in this or not? And, and we, we got our answer yesterday, our hard answer yesterday.
2: Well, Chris Ballard said in his press conference, Joel, that he was open to interviewing college coaches for the head Colts job. Was that just Harbaugh, or do you think there will be some other college coaches that might get invited to uh, interview?
7: Um, I think if there were – well, you hate to say this. You hate to say this because then it turns around and then they, then then they interview Matt Campbell or somebody. But I feel like, given that most for for college coaches the season's over, uh, I think that if that was going to happen, it would have happened already, um, especially with some of the time that they've had. So uh, maybe I mean, who knows if there's if there's a something they've been one of the co- the college coaches have been waiting for, uh, but but it's, it sort of seems like that maybe isn't as big a deal and we we're, we should be focusing more on these guys that they've interviewed and these coordinator types that they've been involved with.
1: Joel, the balance that the Colts are having to go through like any teams do when their offseason starts early is unique because you're trying to fit in or or navigate through these different interviews with teams that are still involved in the playoffs. Uh, Damico Ryans comes to mind, a Wink Martindale as well. Where does the playoffs from a Colts perspective impact their timeline while also not wanting to get necessarily caught with their tail between their legs, so to speak. If other teams are in the same pool of coaches, they've already interviewed and want to jump the gun for a team that isn't in the playoffs anymore. How, how do they navigate through that? And, and where is that impacted by the request they put out there for wink, Martindale and D'Amico Ryans?
7: Yeah. So I think, I think what, what's gone on so far with this, you know, Chris Ballard, the, the search has played out the way Chris Ballard said it would. Uh, The last time we talked to him, Um, you know, it is a, it's a very wide net. Obviously there's 11 reported uh, candidates right now. Um, Seven of them have interviewed Uh, there. There's three to come. I think the timing on guys like Martindale and Kafka and Ryan's has, has more to do with them being available this week. You know, Ryan's is doing stuff at the end of the week. Uh, Kafka, I, there was one report I saw that said Dable was, was not – they were not going to – the Giants guys weren't going to do anything. And I saw another one that they might get let do something at the end of the week. But those guys are available this week. They weren't last week. It seems like the Colts are sort of following the protocol. And in terms of, like, who they hire, Ballard made it very clear that he was willing to be patient. Now, if one of these guys blows them away – and maybe not maybe not willing to be patient. is Maybe that's not the right way to put it. Maybe the right way to put it is uh, – going into it with that desire to not miss anything not leave any unturned stones basically not end up in the situation they ended up with uh josh mcdaniels i think that's the thing that jumped everybody's mind correctly and so you know if if one of their big time candidates i went down the road a ways with you know denver or somebody like that i think maybe they I think maybe they, they'd have to, to kick it in gear, but I don't see anything like that going on right now because for some of those other jobs, you know, the specter of, like, Sean Payton is interviewing in three of those places this week, might be interviewing with Arizona soon. You know, there, there's a bunch of different places. Um, Payton, Payton's availability sort of slows everything down and it gives the Colts a chance to wait, I think.
2: Are you surprised that Gus Bradley hasn't been asked to interview
7: um no not necessarily um you know it seems like the league has kind of decided that that Gus is a is a defensive coordinator um at this point um and, and maybe not a head coach so I, I guess I'm not I guess I'm not super surprised he hasn't really gotten a lot of head coaching interviews over the last couple uh, since he was the head coach of the Jaguars. so no i'm not I'm not super surprised
1: Joel when you look at where the Colts are at in terms of this unique, balancing act they're going to have to be a part of for the draft coming up in three months uh, or four months from now And you look at the coaching search ongoing this popped into our head yesterday when we were talking about it are the Colts going to trade up and that's a whole nother can of worms but the Texans are frequently going to be a specter in my mind over these next couple of months as they both are in a similar situation trying to rebuild that brings me to Sean Payton there's been no uh, it appears, anyway, uh, formal interest on his part in regard to the Colts is there expected from your reporting of what you've seen? Any type of push on their front to try to have an interview with him?
7: I I know the Colts. I well, I, I should say Nick Underhill, who I used to work with and who who is kind of that guy to, who knows stuff in New Orleans, reported last week that the, that all five teams had at least inquired, which means that means the Colts too, that includes them. Obviously, they're the only team that hasn't been mentioned as being granted a chance to interview. Um, And when Sean Payton was talking, I mean, he obviously was was kind of way more open yesterday about the search on Colin Cowherd's show on his his daughter's podcast than I think most people would expect a coaching candidate to be. Um, You know, he didn't mention the Colts. He mentioned a lot of the other teams by name. He never mentioned the Colts. Hasn't done it. There hasn't been much smoke there. Now that that could be a couple of different things. That 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 could just mean that the Colts inquired, found out what the Saints would want from them, uh, because obviously they, you have to trade for Sean Payton, and they said no, we're not willing to do that for a head coach. Um, Payton said on the Coward Show, you know, a mid to, uh, to late first round pick. The Colts have the number four pick, and obviously the franchise quarterback. So you're obviously not you're probably not giving that up. I think if you're going to give up a a high pick for Sean Payton, it's because you feel like you have your quarterback and most of your roster in place. Um, But, yeah, it it just doesn't seem like there's anything really going on there beyond just they checked in on him, saw what it might take. and, And either one of two things is true, or maybe both things is true. Either the Colts didn't like what they had in terms of compensation or Sean Payton didn't like what he saw in terms of the Colts.
2: I get the feeling, and I may be wrong, but I get the feeling that this is all window dressing. And at the end of the day, Jeff Saturday is going to be the Colts next, the Colts coach next year.
7: Well, I mean, that's that's that. The thing is, I think everyone kind of has the same view on that, and it's probably the, it's probably the correct one. If if that happens, that's just it's up to Jeff. It's up to Jim Irsay doing that. Ballard said, you know, we're gonna we're gonna. I'm he's leading the, pro, so the process. He's going to lead the search. They're going to present their findings to Ursae, and Ursay will make the final decision. And I think that's the I think that's the uh, that's the scenario where Saturday ends up being the, the head coach is that Ursae just decides to go with the guy he brought in as the interim uh, unexpectedly, rather than then go with um, one of these you know guys that they've interviewed.
1: Joel, to Brian's point, because I, I've half talked about that the last couple weeks with a. a slight mix of tongue-in-cheek but also a reality of billionaire owners are going to do what billionaire owners want to do and there's not much sense trying to read tea leaves into that to your point at the end of the day if jim ursay wants jeff saturday to be the next coach whether he thinks that jeff didn't get a fair shake the last couple weeks whether he wants to see what this looks like long term it's ultimately his decision but in terms of the rest of west 56 then as you're navigating this story how legitimate is that concept or is it just a, a – because Brian Quilly has it, I have it as well – is it a, a a fear or a legitimate acquisition that could happen for the Colts this offseason? How, how real is that for Jeff Saturday being named the full-time head coach?
7: Well, I, I think the fact that he was named interim is, is the it shows you that it's real. I mean, no one would have guessed that or said that going into it. I, I don't think anyone would guess that or say that based on what we've seen from Saturday – from Saturday, the, the Jeff Saturday version of the Colts after – um, after he was the interim, I mean, obviously they went one in seven with a negative eighty-seven point differential. They had some historic losses in there. there there's not a lot there. Um, you know, I, there's there's no case really from the football side. But that's that's what people were saying when they hired him as as the interim was. There, there's nothing here to suggest that this is a possibility. So it's it, it's realistic because, the, like, the thing I keep thinking about is. If there's anything we should have learned from this Colts season, it's that, the, that anything can happen at any time. And trying to guess it based on the way things have gone precedent-wise uh, or, or what you're used to seeing maybe is not the best way to look at it. So I, I think everything's realistic just because everything has ended up being
2: realistic this season. I'll be honest with you. I'm a little bit intrigued as to what the Colts would look like if Jeff Saturday is the head coach. What would his coaching staff look like? What would he do differently having the whole season to prepare rather than being parachuted in in the middle of the season? And I would imagine, Joel, a little bit in the back of your mind, you've got to be a little bit intrigued, too, with that scenario because it would certainly make for some good stories.
7: Uh, Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. Uh, my, my experience is that if things got worse down the stretch there, people sort of tuned out on, on the, the good stories around the Colts and they just wanted to read about conflict. So I, I don't know if it's, if it's the best thing. I, I, I guess this is the thing. I, I don't – to me, the, the idea that there was nothing that he could do to change the, the fortunes of the team at all is it, a hard sell for me. It's a hard sell – because, just because of the history of interim coaches. The 1-7 finish was the worst uh, for any interim coach with more than six games in, in 20 years, more than 20 years. And so uh, I, I understand that, that obviously you don't have systems in place, scheduling, that kind of thing, uh, and that they were down some offensive coaches. But uh, I, I just feel like, that, like two decades of history tells you that an interim can generally uh, – do better than Saturday did, and so for me, the, the, the on-field stuff is what sticks out there.
1: Brian, I'm I'm chuckling because when you. The way you describe that, I'm fascinated by it because in the same way I'd be fascinated by someone that's going to get in a cage with a tiger, like, oh, what's this guy doing? I can't, I can't wait to see what happens next. That's of kind thing. of what I'm thinking, yeah. Uh, Joel A. Erickson joining us via the Motor Shop and Fishers hotline, themotorshop.com for all your residential commercial mowers, as well as snowblowers, power equipment, tools, so much more to have you covered at the Motor Shop and Fishers and themotorshop.com. It's been a good mix of both offensive and defensive coordinators uh, over their interview process to this point, Joel uh, through the interviews that have been had to this point, Eric Bieniemy, Raheem Morris, to name a few, obviously Bubba Ventrone in house. Uh, what has been your takeaways from those interviews so far? And does this, in your mind, need to be an offensive-focused mind at the top job on West 56th? Uh,
7: I, I don't think it necessarily has to be an offensive-focused mind. Um, you know, I, I, and I know, I know that most of the coaches left in the playoffs now are offensive-minded. Uh, backgrounds or offense, or they have offensive histories, but I think, I think it's obviously possible to have a defensive-minded or otherwise-minded head coach and be successful. Um, you know, the the Ravens are out now. John Harbaugh came from special teams. He's a very good coach. Sixty percent winning percentage over his over his career has a Super Bowl. Uh, Sean McDermott, Sean McDermott might be the best. Uh, example of the fact that a defensive coach can help a young quarterback if he brings the right people in around him on staff because obviously McDermott, the defensive coordinator with the panthers he gets hired in buffalo he doesn't really have any quarterback chops i think that one of the things with carolina and the teams that he was a part of in carolina was sort of that they they could never get cam newton beyond uh to get beyond what cam newton always was you know and you know that so you you in theory, you would talk down on the idea of when, when they get hired of Sean McDermott developing a quarterback. But his quarterback is Josh Allen, who everybody thought coming out was going to be terrible because he was too raw and wasn't accurate and instead has developed into one of the two best quarterbacks in the league. Um, now, obviously, Brian Dayball has a big part in that. Like the guys that he's hired, the offensive staff are a big part in that. But it shows that it's possible. It shows that it's possible to get those guys in there and, and hire staff members who can develop the quarterback and can focus on the quarterback while the head coach handles head coaching duties?
2: The um, I lost my train of thought. I'm sitting over here with a great question, <laughs> and I and I lost my train of thought. Happens to the best of us. Oh no! Draft. Let's let's talk draft. Do you think the Colts will stay at number four, or do you think they're going to try to move
3: up?
7: That's a good question. I based on past history my my general reaction would be that the Colts are going to stay put. Now, isn't that dangerous though? Yes, and that's that's where I was going to go next. Like so I asked Ballard point blank during his press conference, if you thought a guy was the right guy, would you move heaven and earth would you go up to number 1 to get him? He unequivocally said yes. And I think that given where they have this pick, how rare it is, generally for this franchise to have this high pick. Now, who knows what's going to happen going forward? But how rare it's been for this this franchise to have this high pick. You have to capitalize on it, and whoever you come out, whoever comes out on top of your draft board, I I don't want I would I personally wouldn't want any chance of losing them. I just wouldn't. You you you, you even if it's even if it's not what everybody says, even if you decide to say that you know, CJ Stroud is better than Bryce Young and he's your guy. And everyone is saying Bryce Young's going to be the number one pick. I just wouldn't be able to count on that because there's three picks in front of you that can be moved. People can move up into them. Someone can make a different thing, can decide the same thing you did. Uh, If I think a guy guy is the guy, I do whatever it takes to make sure that I get him. I don't want him going anywhere else. Uh, I want him in my building regardless of what it takes. Because here's the thing. If you get it right, no one cares what you gave up. No one cares. Like the Chiefs and the Bills moved up to get their guys. Nobody cares or even sort of remembers what they gave up to get him because they ended up getting the right guy. So it's, it's about getting the right guy. And I, unless they're all graded similarly and you feel like they all have the same shot, which seems to me to be that would be a remarkable occurrence, uh, I'd be trying to move up to get the guy I wanted
2: how much do you think the opinions of these quarterbacks will change when we get to the combine? Because we always see, you know, the draft order, you know, all these uh, Mel Kuypers of the world that always changes after the combine. How much do you think that might that might happen with these quarterbacks?
7: I, I think that the, the, the there generally tends to be some some moving over the course of the process. Like I think about you know Zach Wilson somehow ending up at number two when it, going into it, it was always. Going into that college football season, it was always supposed to be Trevor and Justin, Trevor and Justin, Trevor and Justin, and then Fields dropping to 11. So I think there'll be some movement. Um, predicting how that is and what's what's going to happen with it is is kind of hard because some of it just depends on like I could see Anthony Richardson making a big move up in sort of the Trey Lance way, where you're just you just love the tools so much that you're interested in in what he can do from that standpoint. I could see uh, Will Levis and his throwing of the ball, his ability to throw the ball and make all the throws, sort of moving him up in kind of the the, the Wilson way, because you know there was that pro day where Wilson was running left and threw a bomb down the field, and um, everyone was talking about that. So I think that there's a possibility um, that one of those guys could end up shuffling the draft order. Uh, trying to guess who it is is really hard.
1: Joel, you have a piece up on the. Indy Star right now entitled Why Jeff Saturday's CEO-Style Approach Bucks the NFL's head coaching trend. You've kind of referenced the fact that a lot of these successful head coaches of the last 15, 20 years, uh, Bruce Arians, Doug Peterson, Andy Reid, Bill Belichick, to name a few, have all had different innovative capabilities versus you reference Mike Tomlin, John Harbaugh as, as the CEO types that are true leadership guys, but that you're able to build great systems around them. We all know this is a treacherous time in terms of the direction of the Colts franchise where they might be bringing in a young quarterback. Uh, is that concerning having that style of coach that's going to emphasize so much on his coordinators and his staff while also trying to potentially build a quarterback of the future in this year's draft?
7: I think it's I think it's I think it's par I think it's twofold. I think it's partially I think it's partially the quarterback thing, but more the the, the thing that sticks out to me is more that Uh, A quarterback who has an expertise in one side of X's and O's or the other, whether or not they're actually coordinating the offense and calling the plays or coordinating the defense and calling the plays, then has the ability to stretch his coordinators and test them and get them to move their schemes in a different way. They can have a meeting and say, hey, this is what I'm seeing in the defense. Can we do more of this so that offenses can't attack you in this way? Uh, Or or vice versa. Same thing going – going the other way on the other side of the ball. I, I think that that's, I think that's part of the reason that you have, well, well, I mean, one of the other things is you heard Jeff Saturday all through the, his time there basically say, well, we're down three coaches on the offensive side of the ball. Well, technically he replaced one of those coaches. Right. He replaced Frank Reich and couldn't do the same things that Frank Reich was, had, had would be able to do in terms of building an offensive scheme, um, you know, transforming an offset offensive scheme, fitting the players who was in there, it's that when you have a coach who's cap- a head coach who's capable of doing that, who's willing to do that X's and O's stuff, it adds more manpower to the room. Doesn't mean he has to be the play caller, doesn't mean he has to be the coordinator, but it helps to have a coach who can test and stretch and add something uh, when you're looking for answers.
2: In your opinion, is there a leader in the clubhouse as far as the uh, coaching search is concerned?
7: I, I don't, I don't think so. Not at this point. They seem they're still they're still gathering. You know, they've still got at least three more interviews, and I think there's a chance of a couple more. You know, with some of these guys that are still in the playoffs. Like, I wonder if we see a, a Keller Moore or Dan Quinn get an interview here. So, um, I, right now, it seems like from from Ballard's process, the way he set, set it up. Again, the ultimate decision rests with Thursday, but uh, the way Ballard's process set it up, I think he wants to sort of gather the whole field and then figure out what's next.
1: Joel, to that end, and this might be a question that you don't have the answer to, Ballard is obviously managing this process as is Colts' ownership, but that rug that could be pulled out from under you of Jeff Saturday. Is this a dynamic that Ballard is just rolling with the punches with as a general manager under contract, holding one of the most coveted jobs in all of sport and just being accepting of that, that the owner is ultimately going to make the decision, or is there a, a tug and pull understanding that one of these candidates has just as much of a shot to be the guy as potentially Jeff Saturday at the end of the day?
7: Yeah when i asked when i asked ballard that that question specifically uh he pushed back on it now whether or not that's the that's the his actual feelings or not i i think you it's anybody's guess or, or whether it's actually going to work that way is anybody's guess because they have to say it's going to be an open and thorough right. search they absolutely have to so um there's so much of this just comes down to what's what's going on in jim Irsay's mind what is, what does he want to do is he is he open to changing the coach uh, away from Jeff Saturday? In his mind, was Jeff Saturday the only coach going going forward? Because I don't, I did not get that from Chris Bowley's press conference at all. I didn't get that he was a leader, um, the leader in the clubhouse. You know, he was Ballard said he's a candidate, and I'd be interested to hear what his vision is. That's the kind of stuff you could say about any of these guys. Uh, Urse though obviously holds the ultimate trump card, and and. And Ballard acknowledged that. There were a couple times that Ballard said, is going to make some football decisions that I'm going to disagree with." And uh, or he's made some some football decisions that I disagreed with. So that's that's the ultimate wild card here is is what does Jim Ursay want to do?
1: Joel A. Erickson, nice enough to take some time with us, Colts Insider for the Indy Star, analyst on Fox 59 and CBS 4, and host over at the Star of the Colts Cover Two podcast. Joel, always appreciate you making time for us, and look forward to the continued conversations as this search unfolds. Yeah, thanks, for, thanks for having me on, guys. No problem. Again, that's Joel A. Erickson. You can follow him on Twitter at Joel a Erickson. We're going to step away. We come back. We will head to the hardwood as the Butler Bulldogs back in action tonight as they look for revenge over Creighton after falling to them 78-56 back on December the 22nd. Dogs looking to string together back-to-back wins and get back in general into the Big East race as they look to not only make more noise in the Big East, but achieve their goal of getting back to the Big Dance. Nick Gardner of the Butler Bulldogs Radio Network joins us next here on the Fan Midday Show hundred seven-five. The Fan
0: whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits long live listening to your favorites learn more about cascali ribocyclib 200 milligrams at kisqali.com and talk to your doctor to see if cascali is right for you
3: 93.5 and 107.5 the fan
2: we're back in the drive studio the fan midday show i'm brian hammonds along with jimmy cook and our producer james adams Tonight at Hinkle Fieldhouse, the Butler Bulldogs take on the Creighton Blue Jays. Creighton beat Butler by 22 points back in December at Creighton. Hopefully things get turned around tonight for the Bulldogs. And joining us now, the color analyst for Butler Basketball's radio broadcast, Nick Gardner. Nick, thanks for joining us.
4: My pleasure, Brian. Thanks for having me on.
2: So Manny Bates is out, and it appears that this might be a prolonged absence. Is that true?
4: You know, to be honest, I'm not sure. Um, it it kind of sounds that way. I haven't heard anything um, definite on that. But, boy, it, it sounds like kind of moving ahead in the next kind of the short term that it's going to be a similar lineup, similar lineup that we saw against Villanova. So I think that's safe to – to kind of assume that.
2: So Jalen Thomas is in the starting lineup in his place, and then Ali Ali has been moved into the starting lineup. How is this team? How is this lineup different than what we saw earlier in the season?
4: Yeah, it is. Um, I think it's a lot different. I think I think matchup wise, number one, you, you add some more size on the wing when you add Ali Ali in there, uh, just just to help out with rebound. Rebounding was an issue, you know, when the big when Big East play started. Going back to that first matchup out in Omaha. Um, you get some more shooting. Ali Ali's a guy who's has scored, you know, at a high rate. Was a top fifteen scorer in the MAC. Can extend the floor. Can create his own shot. He's kind of a unique skill set. When you look at his size on the wing, he's more of kind of a wing forward than than a guy who can can kind of run the show. He's not he's not a guy that wants to have that, the ball in his hands a ton. He's going to catch and shoot more often. Jalen Thomas is a little different. He he he's certainly got the size and shot blocking ability, but. I think folks have seen with his game is more of a, a face up game, a guy who can hurt you in the mid range and can really go get rebounds out of his area. And so he's been a guy who's had a nose for the ball throughout and, and has brought some energy and a little more activity to that center spot.
1: Nick, it's Jimmy. I remember during the Big East tournament last year, a lot of my family and our butler ties, you know, seeing. Seamus lococious ball out against or against Xavier I beg your pardon uh, during that win the big East tournament you know it, it made me think all right here's a budding freshman he has experience across the pond he's going to be a, a massive part of a bulldog success moving forward as he continues to grow uh, how important has his role been on this team another six and0 in his career when he's uh, I can't remember if it was north of 20, who was in the, the game Note tonight. But w- when he's in that range, 6-0 with the Bulldogs, has a career-high 28 points. Uh, when he leads the team in scoring is what it is. They're 6-0 in those games. H- how has sophomore development been for Lacocious this year, and how critical was he in that winter, Villanova?
4: Well, he was kind of start with, with the ending there, Jimmy. He was fantastic, obviously. I think his ability, what makes him so unique is uh, he's got an unbelievable feel for the game. He talks about his experience, you know, he's been playing against pros for a while, and he, he's he got a bigger frame too. So he uses that to his advantage, and he can get guys – he can get going downhill, he can get guys on his hip, and then you know he's going to make kind of the right play, whether that's you know a kick out, whether that's a guy cutting, or whether it's him finishing at the rim. Uh, he, he's shown the ability to be able to do all of that and do that at a high level. And so I think you see the success of the team come because – of the fact that he can make those plays for others too. So when he gets going, uh, you know, you, you got to defend all areas. And if if there's an opening for him to make something happen, uh, he's going to take advantage of it. I think the progression what you've seen is now, it, it, he made shots the other night. In Big East play, it slipped a little bit. But his three-point shooting has been much, much more consistent this season. And because of that, that's opened some things up and kept his versatility at the forefront with his offensive game. I think much like this team, you look at the consistency, though. Can you bring it night in and night out and be consistent with that production? Because, to your point, Jimmy, when when you see that type of production from CMOS, it tends to uh, be a good night for the Bulldogs. So his importance, it kind of shows with those numbers and the wins that come with it. um, He's got to try to be more consistent, much like the whole team does. But he's certainly a guy that oftentimes, because of his versatility, Um, he's a huge threat. And I think with the added, look, he was playing out of position a lot early. Um, He had to play kind of the four spot almost and and, and had to kind of shuffle around. So that versatility didn't allow him to maybe get settled in. And I think with, with Ali, with Thomas, with some of those guys coming back, it's going to allow him to stay more towards his natural wing position. And I think you're going to see hopefully that production Um, stay more consistent, and stay at the high level that he was against Villanova. He was fantastic on Friday.
2: And we're talking with Nick Gardner, the color analyst for Butler Basketball, on radio. Nick, with all the injuries that Thad Mata has had to deal with this year, I mean, you talk about Jalen Thomas and Ali Ali. They pretty much missed the first half of the season. They're just now getting back, and now Manny Bates is out for who knows how long. Is this team still trying to find their identity, trying to find the right combinations?
4: Yeah, I think absolutely, Brian. It's uh, you know those they're they're going through some of the bumps and bruises that you want to do you know in early November um, before you or, or early December before you get to Big East play. I mean, really, some of the most meaningful minutes, uh, really the, the 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 game that those guys were integrated into the lineup was UConn, right? So you're starting off against at the time what was a top five team. And having to feel things out and, and try to define roles and substitution patterns and and all the different things that come with adding new guys to the lineup you're trying to do that on the fly against really high level competition, so I think that's that that's part of the reason why you've seen some of the inconsistency from game to game. I mean, if you looked at you know the two games out east and then watched the Villanova game, it looked like you know two different teams, and I think look, some of that is coming home. Some of that is taking your bumps on the road, but a lot of that is just the the reps and the added time that you've had with those lineups and kind of figuring out what is the pecking order, what are what is my role um, to add to the formula of our team success. There's no doubt they're figuring that out, and it's good. That's why it was so good to see them figure some of that out in what was a fantastic atmosphere and a big win on Friday night at Hinkle.
1: Nick, to Brian's point. The first time that the Bulldogs met Creighton this year, obviously a seventy-eight to fifty-six loss. They were still dealing with injuries and getting their lineup in order as well as they could while waiting for reinforcements to come along. Uh, since that ball game, Bulldogs are three and three respectively, but have sprung together some wins like we talked about when we last spoke in December in Big East play: Georgetown, DePaul, Villanova. Most recently, Manny Bates is now out, as Brian alluded to earlier where is this Butler team different than that December 22nd meeting against Creighton? Well,
4: it's a good question. I think, number one, um, some of those roles, back to Brian's last question, those some of those roles are a little bit more defined than they were. Sure. Um, and, and you did so in a win. So I think that that's a little bit more solidified. You've got guys kind of in their more natural positions. I think especially tonight, um, like a guy like Jalen Thomas, he he knows he's going to have to go, right? He's going to have to play. the bulk of the minutes to defend Kalkbrenner. In some ways, he may be a little bit of a better matchup for Kalkbrenner just because of the way the Blue Jays utilize him. Um, You know, Kalkbrenner has gotten better with his back to the basket. He he certainly can catch it and score off the block. But a lot of his points and opportunities come with with running the floor, with rim runs. They come with middle pick and roll action where they can throw some lobs. And and, and Jalen is more of a face-the-basket type of guy who can use his feet a little bit maybe that could be advantageous for the dogs. I think ball-screen defense is going to be huge. And so I think those roles are defined a lot more. Um, but in many ways, the dogs are still looking to, to kind of solidify some of those things. So they're just a little farther along in the process. But, but that team Friday night, if they come out with that same type of energy, that t- same type of intensity – Uh, on the defensive end and the ball moves like it did, I think you're going to see a much improved team and and hopefully much of what you saw on Friday night. But a lot of it has been so inconsistent, Jimmy, game to game, it's hard to say how much different they are a month away just because of how turbulent it has been kind of in between there.
2: To this point, there's been a big difference between Butler and the top teams in the conference. I mean, their average loss, their five losses, has been by an average of 23 points. Is there any chance of this team getting on a run and, and becoming a tournament team?
4: I think there is. Um, I think for for kind of all the things we talked about, is number one, there's talent there. I think that's been shown. I think they've shown, you know, I saw some clips that uh, the great John Dedman released on social media after the game where Coach Mata was saying, hey, you guys, there's the bar, right? You guys set the bar. Now the challenge is can we meet that bar and that expectation night in and night out? when we're playing against these top teams. And and you got to think, with that bar that they set, they're going to be able to beat some of those teams if they can do that consistently. I think the other reason why I say they can, Brian, is you look at the schedule. Um, You know, this is going to wrap up the season series with Creighton tonight. You've yet to face Marquette. You've yet to face Xavier. So you've got – there's four matchups against top 15, top 20 opponents you still get an opportunity to go to Providence. So there are opportunities in the big East to go get wins that you can help pad your resume. There isn't particularly a, a, a terrible or bad loss per se. And so because of that, and because of the, the bar that they've kind of shown, they've set, um, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, be optimistic and say, Hey, if this team can put some wins together, you know, get to that, who knows what it's, what it's going to take. Is it 10? Is it 11? Is it 12 wins? Who knows? But it, that kind of varies on who those wins are against. And with four opportunities against a couple of those top teams and some other opportunities on the road to get some big quad one wins, uh, I think absolutely those those goals and, and that expectation should still be inside for this group.
1: Nick, it's not, as you well know, It's not a uh, paper schedule, right? There's easily matchups on the schedule you and I can look at, and I feel the same way as you. I want to have that optimism, and you look at maybe playing Georgetown again or or home at St. John's. Like There are wins, like you mentioned, to stack up. As you're measuring them, though, let's say they are going to be a tournament team. I know it's hard to do without Bates out there, without full strength, as they continue to shift starting lineups out there. But what do you want to see from this Bulldogs team, not just against Creighton tonight, but a road trip against Connecticut? Like you mentioned, out east, the Dogs have struggled at times. What do you want to see out of them outside of the obvious, which is wins, when they have those steal-a-game signature wins they could add to the schedule?
4: Well, I think you you kind of bottle up what you saw on Friday night, Jimmy. I thought, um, look, oftentimes you can make up for what may be imperfect – you know, a technical aspect by playing with energy and playing with enthusiasm and doing it together. And I thought that's what you saw in droves on Friday. You saw four guys really accepting their roles and trying to thrive in them. Um, You know, I think specifically a guy like Jaden Taylor, who is going to have much better and has had much better offensive games. But his imprint on that game and his defense of Caleb Daniels in the second half was huge. I mean, uh, Villanova was... Well, they had found a matchup that they were gonna. It looked like they were gonna ride the whole way, and and Jaden was able to rise to the occasion. And boy, I thought his defense was impressive, and he he didn't score a ton of points, but his impact on the game was massive. And so I think just kind of bottling up that type of energy and effort and togetherness that you saw on Friday. Um, look, there's gonna be nights where you make more shots than you miss, but I think typically if if you show that enthusiasm and you play with that level of urgency. Um, you know, those shots are going to start falling and those balls may start bouncing your way because you get rewarded for that effort and that energy. And so, if anything, you want to see a consistent effort and energy, and then some of those other things will tend to fall into place if, if you have a mindset like that.
2: Tonight is Project 44 night, uh, which honors the legacy of Andrew Smith, the, the center that played on those uh, final four teams, those national championship game teams that passed away from leukemia. It encourages people to uh, donate to the bone marrow registry. Always a special night at Hinkle Fieldhouse, Nick.
4: Oh, no doubt. No doubt, Brian. And, um, you know, the impact that Project 44, that Samantha Smith have had and the lives, say, are, are touching, and it, it's a really simple thing. And if you're not uh, – mm-hmm. If you're not aware of it, you can register for the National Bone Marrow Registry. It's a simple swipe of the cheek. Um, I'm sure there will be spots at, at Hinkle tonight if you're there, or you can go to the Be the Match where you can find those things. And this is always a special one. It's cool this year too, Brian. We've been able – this will be the second Project 44 game. When we played out at Penn State earlier this year, the connection with Micah Shrewsbury um, and, and his uh, support of Project 44. So you saw the Project 44 shirts for that game. One of the first games away from Hinkle Fieldhouse, I believe, to have that. And now we get our annual one at Hinkle uh, to support Andrew. And um, and it's a great cause. It's easy to do. And it is hugely impactful for so many. So to want to always pub that. And again, it's a really easy thing to do and it goes a long way towards touching so many.
2: Well, well said. And, hey, there's going to be a lot of big-time recruits there tonight, too, including the stud from Kokomo, Flori Badunga. So do whatever you can, Nick, to get him to sign on the dotted line to go to Butler.
4: <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, if... Uh... It, hopefully it's an atmosphere like we we had on friday guys i don't know if either of you happen to be there i know both of you are, are at hinkle quite a bit but it was um it was one of those nights right where the, the juice was there um i've talked to so many people who it was like it's fun to win obviously but the atmosphere was one of those fun nights at hinkle and so hopefully we can replicate that because if, if you're sitting there watching that one you'd be hard pressed uh not to want to come do that throughout your college career so it's uh it's a fun atmosphere, and look, this is a big-time game. So another opportunity, and hopefully we can get Henkel rocking again.
2: Absolutely. If you have a chance, get out to Hinkle Fieldhouse tonight. Nick, thanks for joining us, and good luck tonight. Have a good broadcast. Thanks, Nick.
4: Thanks, guys. Take care.
2: That's Nick Gardner. You can hear him doing the radio color analyst work for the Butler Bulldogs. And tonight they take on Creighton at Hinkle Fieldhouse. Creighton comes in ten and eight, four and three in the conference. Uh, Butler comes in eleven and eight, three and five in the Big East. We'll come back with more on the Fan Midday
0: Show. So stick around. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclib 200mg at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you.
3: 93.5 and 107.5, The Fan.
0: We're back on the Fan Midday Show.
2: Brian Hammonds, Jimmy Cook, and our producer, James Adams. If you want to join our conversation, give us a call, 317-239-1070. We have a couple of callers on the line. Let's start with Luke. What do you want to talk about, bud?
6: Hey, how's it going, Brian? Big fan. Love hearing your voice on the radio. Thank you. Yeah, just wanted to uh, you know go back to the Colts head coaching search, you know, With the divisional round and everything and the playoffs, you know, you look at the teams that are still in it, seven of those coaches are offensive minds. And I know Joel mentioned earlier, Sean McDermott, not the Butler basketball player, uh, but, you know, he's a defensive guy with Josh Allen. You know, I'm thinking going forward, the Colts got to go with an offensive mind, right?
2: You know, I, I don't care who they hire, whether it's offensive minded or a defensive coordinator. They just have to have an offensive coordinator and a quarterback coach that can develop a young quarterback because that's what they're going to end up with, hopefully. If not, then you've got real problems. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't mind a defensive coordinator that comes in and becomes the head coach as long as he hires a great offensive coordinator and a quarterback coach,
1: Jimmy. I'm on the same boat in regards to – wanting to see it play out and not having like, I'm not going to lose my mind and flip a table if they hire a defensive coordinator. But to your overall point, Luke, and why I kind of lead more in your camp is – The Colts, from a defensive standpoint, and again, if they bring in, let's just say, Mike Kafka for the sake of argument, I don't know if he's going to keep Gus Bradley. He would likely bring in his own staff, but if you bring in a mind like Bradley or an experienced defensive mind, that's not the area of the problem for the Colts in my mind right now. The bigger issue is what's under center, how you're navigating through that, and while McDermott is an example of a defensive mind succeeding, I like more the traditional route of having an offensive Mindset that has worked with quarterbacks before, that has worked underneath coaches that are innovators on the offensive end. That's what I'd like to see out of them personally. Yeah, yeah whoever it is, good. has got to be able to develop a quarterback. Yes, yes. You Either know, side of the ball.
6: I really like Ben Johnson. I think you know, out of Detroit, I think a lot of good things can come from him. Young guy, um, you know, also led the Lions to six in the league and uh, points per game, and I think they're first at for home points per game, which is huge considering the Colts were at the bottom of the, the league in that regard. But um, also Bubba Ventrone, I feel like that's a name that the Colts special teams guy, would love to see him get a shot, maybe even get Jeff Saturday to be the offensive line coach, keep him in the realm, and you know, I would be very happy to see Colts go that route.
2: You know, you would think that the only way that Gus Bradley is going to be here next year is if the Colts hire Jeff Saturday or Bubba Ventron.
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't disagree with that yeah. because it, so often, and I totally get it. If you're a head coach, you want full and Luke appreciate the phone call. Thank you so much for coming on with us today. You so often as a coach or as the leader of a group, you want to know everybody that's in the trenches with you, and you want to have familiarity there. Now, I guess Bradley's been a, around a long time, so that's not to say that he couldn't have some type of camaraderie with a head coach that's brought in. But yeah, on the surface, you would think of Bradley's future. It's someone that's already in house. That is leading alongside him. Yeah, I personally would like to see Gus Bradley come back.
2: He had a a good year with all four David wants to talk about Butler. Hello, David.
5: Hey, Brian. Yeah, this is David James. I wanted to call and let you know it's sunny and spring-like out
2: here. (laughs) It is, isn't it?
5: Meteorologist, pal. Uh, And I know there's something about uh, to set for history and perspective, and you've got that above everybody else, I think. Whether it's Colts or Pacers or Butler, especially Butler, since you were a student there. Yeah,
2: that's a nice way of saying I'm old.
7: (laughs) Nah, well, I'm older, so there you go. Uh, But, yeah, we started back on the anchor desk at Channel 6 in 1980. And uh, so what do you think, uh, looking back, say, for Butler over the years, is it, uh, I know you need both, is it uh, recruiting or coaching, which
5: is the most important for their success that you've seen?
2: Well, recruiting, uh, and I think we're seeing Thad Mata do a good job with that. I mean, the, just the now recruiting includes the transfer portal, and he's brought in a couple of really good transfers this year. Uh, he's got a couple recruits. He's got a real shooter coming in next year. So I'm high on what Thad Mata is doing with his recruiting, and that's the most important thing. And now you got to worry about the NIL and all that other stuff. So there's a lot more to it than than used to be in college coaching. But I think recruiting, David, is. Uh, is is going to be the key for Butler moving forward. And thank you for this nice day. I, I wouldn't mind going out and trying to play nine holes, actually. But, hey, thanks for calling, David. We're up against it. we got to take a break. We'll be back and talk with Tony East and talk uh, about the Indiana Pacers. They've lost four in a row. Can they get things turned around, even though they're going to be without Tyrese Halliburton for the foreseeable future? We'll be back with more on the Fan Midday Show, so stay with us.
0: Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclib 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you.
3: 935 and 1075, the fan. Jimmy Cook and Brian Hammonds
1: with James Adams behind the ones and twos here in the com studio. Thanks for spending part of your Tuesday afternoon with us here on the Fan Midday Show. Pacers in action. We're in action yesterday against the Milwaukee Bucks as the NBA, such a a major date on the calendar is Martin Luther King Jr. Day having their marathon of basketball games throughout the afternoon. Pacers involved With that, falling to the Milwaukee Bucks and covering that contest was Tony East. Uh, Tony, right off the bat, you fired this tweet off last night, so i got to ask you, uh, any truth to the rumors that you're trying to pitch the NBA for longer reviews?
8: I I don't know what happened, but I swear that NBA reviews for fouls and everything are just five to ten minutes long this year. I joked earlier this season wondering how far I could run in a straight line during an NBA review, it's got to be close to a quarter mile at this point.
1: They're so long. Hey, I, I would I would sign up for that live stream if you ever want to try that one day. I'd be uh, <laughs> I'd be totally down for it. Uh, last night or yesterday afternoon, rather, uh, have a lead against the Bucks in the fourth. Couple different runs that sunk the Pacers at times. Uh, where did things go in your mind in this one? And obviously having miles back, but another game without Tyrese Halliburton. How have things flowed or, or not? so much on that end for the Pacers uh, these last couple of games?
8: Yeah, these runs have been killing them since Halliburton's injury, right? They had a really good fourth quarter in New York after his injury, and they played mostly well against Atlanta, but against Atlanta, right, they were up 99-90 to in the fourth and gave the game away late, and they gave a big 14-0 run in the third quarter, right? Memphis was pretty good in the fourth quarter during the competitive part of it the next day, and had a 29-9 run in the second quarter, and we saw it again against Milwaukee last night with the Pacers up 107, 105 with like seven and a half minutes to go, and then the Bucks completely dominate the rest of the game, right? This is part of where they miss Tyrese Halberton the most is they get in these stretches where they just can't slow a team down enough or score enough to, to, to slow down a run, right? The, the, there's no way for them to stop the momentum. They're taking the ball out of the basket, and then they can't score, and it just spirals and spirals, and it hasn't been the same guys on the court every time, For all these runs against different teams, but it's happened in every game they've played without him, and it's costing them big time. Right? They had a big problem with this last year as well, where they would give up seemingly, you know, a big a 10-0 run at an untimely time, or just an unstoppable momentum sequence, and. You know, it's killing them. The, the, the Bucks are good. They, they made 23-3. Like, it's a tough game to win, even without Tyree Talbert. And they played a little differently without him. But that game specifically, you know, they, they shot really well. They actually played well enough to win until that fourth-quarter stretch where the Bucs were just unstoppable. The Pacers have got to figure out how to slow down some of these runs.
2: That's four straight losses now for the Pacers. And when you look at the rest of the month, they're at the Nuggets Friday, at the Suns on Saturday, home with the Bulls, at Orlando, home with the Bucs, at Memphis – that seems to be a real important stretch as far as this season goes.
8: It does, yeah. They lost Halliburton at a tough time in terms of opponent quality and timing, and you know, they've got some back-to-backs in there as well. Uh, when they come home for when they have their easiest game Orlando, I think it's a back-to-back right after they play Chicago, right? So right. their schedule is really tough. They've got a road trip mixed in, and they don't have their best player for the whole stretch, like in a season where things were looking good, right, they reached the halfway point with 23 wins and there were all these questions about do they need to change their direction pretty soon and all of a sudden it's, well, hold on, can they even survive this, you know, two, three weeks, whatever it is, without Tyrese Halliburton. So they play tough games, they play really quality opponents who either in need of a win or on fire. Memphis has won 10 in a row now, you know, for example. So outside of Phoenix, who's struggling, like every team they play in the next couple of weeks is playing pretty good basketball right now. They need to figure something out in terms of you know, just general consistency for a 48 minute game to get some wins if they don't want the the tune of their season to completely change.
2: You know, I was talking to some people inside the inside the organization, and they want to keep Miles. They want to keep Buddy healed. What is your sense on what they might do, if anything, before the trade deadline?
8: Yeah, if they keep those guys, it seems like they're, they'll be pushing their timeline forward slightly or significantly, really, since those are two key vets. But in that case, you know they were in the sixth spot before Hal Burton's injury. Like they, they were a playoff-level talent team this season. If, they, if that's the sense that they have, then it seems like they would look for guys who can be a part of both this year's team for like a small push at the end of this season, and still be good and impactful on future Pacers teams. Right, helpful to them next year, the year after, whatever, because. Eventually, the, the, this cap space they have, they have a ton right now, right? That's very unusual for a team that's actually winning at a decent clip to have a ton of space. It's going to go away, right? You have to pay Benedict Matherin in four years, Tyrese Halliburton in two years, and you get the idea. This is not a forever situation. Right? They just have all the time in the world to figure out what they want. So if they love this core and want to lock into it and try to build on it and they get the team that they, they build with for the future, that they've got to think about a player or players or moves in general if it's not trading for someone that – both can make them better this year if they do want to keep those guys and try to try to contend now and keep them good in future seasons. So if that's, you know, a young player under contract for a long time or the right package of players and picks in a deal for their young players and picks, whatever it is, I think that's what they would look for in a situation where they do hold on to both Miles Turner and Buddy
2: Heald. Yeah, because if you do keep Miles, which, you know, he's a free agent, so that's, you know, that's up in the air. And Buddy Heald, if, if you are able to keep both of them, you really don't have many other options, do you?
8: That's right. That's your team right there. You know, and they like all those guys, right? They, they've been really good this year at times, and they're good players. But you know, it certainly is uh, that, that locking into your team in year one of a rebuild would be pretty interesting, given the way that you know they built to this point. But certainly, if they're good enough to think that you know they add a, a piece here, or there, or make the right draft pick next year with three or four picks, but. They're close, right? They have all this flexibility to make these options, but if this is the team that they believe in, they have to build around those guys and not instead of those guys. So it kind of changes the thinking. It changes the players you would go after, and uh, it makes their flexibility all the more interesting, right? Do they use it now? Do they use it in the summer? Uh, all these timing elements become way more fascinating if Turner and Heald remain on the team.
1: Tony East, nice enough to spend some time with us via the Motor Shop and Fishers hotline, the themotorshop.com, for all your residential commercial mowers, as well as snowblowers, parts, equipment, power tools, so much more they have you covered at the Motor Shop and Fishers and themotorshop.com. You can follow Tony on Twitter, at NBA. Tony, I know this next question isn't fair, but life isn't fair in the NBA. The Pacers want to be, obviously, on a fast track to be a contender. They're trending in the right direction, or at least looked that way for the first half of the season but we point to an absence of Tyrese Halliburton and there being shortcomings and the inability to close out or respond to runs well. They have these lapses. And I know it's a small sample size, but Giannis Antetokounmpo and Chris Middleton weren't out there for the Bucks last night, and they were able to outlast in this heavyweight fight. Again, I know it's only one game, and I know the Bucks are two years removed from an NBA championship, so they are truly a contender. But what does that say about maybe the – Pacers still being a piece or two away if they have these type of lapses without such a key cog in Tyrese Halliburton in year two here in Indiana.
8: Yeah, even when Tyrese was playing right, like the, the, they lost that game to the Knicks not this week, but in you know right before Christmas when they fell to 15 and 16, and you know they had an ugly clutch performance that day and only I think they scored 108 points. Right, like yeah, they were on fire for a little bit there with some great clutch play before Halliburton's injury, but they were still like you no. Know, hardly over a 500 team. I mean, they were like a 55% win percentage team. It's not like they were, you know, so awesome or close. That's why, I, you know, them going for it this year has always been a little surprising to me in terms of them being like buyers necessarily because it's not like they were so awesome before his injury. I mean, they were definitely good. You know, sixth in the East is not something to shrug in. Like, that's very impressive, especially considering where they were last season. They've done a great job building this team, but it's not like they were so far over 500 that it should drastically change the way that they they build their squad, but that said, you know, the fact that they were just, you know, whatever you want to say, a 500 team, a 55% win percentage team, you know, whatever tier you want to put them in, in the East, you lose your best player, you're going to be much worse. And the the problem with it is he, he makes everybody else better, right? Halbert, not only is good himself, he makes Buddy Heald a threatening shooter. He makes the, the lanes open for all these other guys to play really well. So, Losing him also makes their other guys worse, and that's where you feel like they would need another dude, right? Matherin is great, but he's a rookie. He's not necessarily good at creating for others yet. If they could get another piece on their team, it would not only be adding talent, it would be adding another player that lets their other players be as good as possible, even if they have other injuries on the team. So, yeah, they're clearly still something away, right? I think that was obvious even at full health, but especially in the stretch where they've lost four in a row for the first time this season and are missing their best player, uh, they clearly need something else on this team long-term.
1: We still have a month until this really becomes prevalent within the Pacers front office. I'm sure they're thinking about it right now, but Miles Turner returns last night. He drops 30. Anytime he's out there, he's a difference maker for this team. But that looming ghost that you and I have joked about the last couple of months, Tony, is that you cannot afford to let him walk for nothing if extension talks break down. And obviously there's a gap of about three or four weeks between the trade deadline and when an extension can still be done how much is the sweat starting to drip at all, and, and do you have any lean one way or the other of if an extension does not get for get done between these two sides, that a trade would ultimately be imminent after that?
8: Yeah, this stretch right now is pivotal for basically all of that stuff, you know. And it's, it, you know, if you're Turner, you understand that you know they just tried to sign DeAndre Ayton, this dump, right? Like, is that contract your starting point for you in negotiations, and for the Pacers, do you say, well? we don't want to give you that much. You know, there's all sorts of factors at play that make it hard to immediately come to an extension agreement, even though the Pacers have this unique cap situation that allows them to extend him in a way that no other team in the NBA possibly could. There's a lot to consider for Turner and for the Pacers in terms of where they start, where they go with negotiations. That's why I think that the initial offers from both sides would be laughed at by the other party. That said though, right? Like if the Pacers are, you know, whatever, 25 and, 28 at the start of february for example do they really want to be you know rushing into this core maybe they do right maybe they and that's fine but then they have a month to figure it out with turner and that's really risky right like before the trade deadline the pacers have some control of the situation as soon as february 10th comes with miles turner on the team they have absolute zero control right he has all the control he's the only one that can sign anything and 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 you know, d- decide his long term future with this team or any other team. So, you know, they have to be proactive in this time before February 9th. Like, yes, March 1st is the deadline for a renegotiation and extension, but truly they have to think of February 9th as a different deadline because that's when they lose power. So, how they play in the interim and make decisions is really going to matter, I think, in this situation. Like, if they, start to win some games again maybe they think okay we really want to lock into what we have if they start to lose some more then maybe they're more willing to negotiate with other teams but i think it's all gonna i think it's all gonna come to head in the next couple weeks more so than that march 1st deadline just because the pacers lose control at that point
2: i don't think the pacers want to sign miles turner to a max contract but do you think there's somebody out there that might
8: Ooh, a max i would i would be pretty surprised if someone signed him to a max deal um, you know, the thing about his contract that's so interesting is uh, he, you know he was signed like with salary cap like 20 to 30 million lower right so even at just going on the percent of the cap if he is the same exact player he was when he signed this deal he's probably worth like 24 25 million right now and that sounds like a high number people forget how much the salary cap goes up in the league but a max player you know DeAndre Ayton just got for example like the 25 percent max that about $30 million per year when the Pacers signed him. Like, is he worth that much? Aiden hasn't even been that good for the Suns this year. They're they a pretty crummy team since the start of December, since they lost Evan Booker. You know, how much do you want to commit to a center in today's NBA? I don't think any team would be willing to give Miles Turner maximum money. But, you know, it does, last summer, for example, we saw Yusuf Nurkic sign, you know, for $17.5 million a year, or Mitchell Robinson get $15 to 15, $16 million a year, right? Those guys aren't as good as Miles Turner, right? So he's clearly worth... At least 20, likely more, given that he makes 18 now and is certainly a better player than when he signed that deal. So, is he a max guy? I don't think so in the current landscape of the NBA. And I don't think anyone with the max space is going to be rushing to give him that kind of money. But I do think he's worth, you know, in the, in the mid 20s, you know, maybe a hundred year deal over a hundred million uh, dollar deal over four years, if that makes sense.
1: Tony, you know, as well as anybody, that Coach Carlisle continues to preach, particularly in press conferences, both on the effort and level of energy that his teams bring, but also just the physicality on the defensive end and having these at times, you know, ugly not every night, but but have these ugly old era style basketball games on that side of the ball. You emphasize in your last post for all Pacers on Sports Illustrated. The last three games the Pacers have, have not been as sharp defensively. You did put the caveat in there, hey Miles Turner wasn't in there for two of those three games, but they still looked lost against Milwaukee with the way almost in response games coach carlisle's able to get his group back on track are you worried about the defense long term with halliburton out of there or is this something that now that miles is back you expect this to be more fine-tuned and more back to what we saw the first two months of the season
8: yeah i think it'll be a little better than it was last night in their next couple of games where milwaukee hit an insane number of three-pointers <laughs> Last twenty three is just a like that's the Pacers franchise record, right? Milwaukee just ho hum, chucked them up and made them in that game. You know they they were really good shooting the ball. That said, the Pacers definitely had some breakdowns, and Halliburton himself is is not necessarily the best defender right, right now. Like I didn't even he would admit that. But you know he he at least when he's in there, their offense is so much better that the other team is taking the ball out of the basket and has to play in the half court more. Like that helps your defense somewhat, even if the personnel isn't awesome. Whereas now without him, their offense isn't as good, so there's more. Transition fast break, and Matherin's been the guy replacing him in the starting five. And you know he's a nosy defender. He certainly plays with a lot of force. But again, rookies typically struggle on the defensive end. So I, I think that personnel-wise, they'll 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 be a little bit worse defensively, just in tune or excuse me, um, in turn of what they lost with the Halbert injury. But I think you know they they didn't play like awful defense last night. The Bucks hit some crazy shots, especially in that second half. Drew Holiday, Bobby Portis, Jordan Wara were just it felt like every three that took went in, even though. Only half of them actually did. So I'd imagine against you know worse shooting teams or lesser offensive teams, OKC, okay, Phoenix right now isn't playing very well, won't shoot that well. I think their defense will look better as as time progresses without Halliburton, But certainly in the in the couple of games they've played recently, it has now looked good. And something they really need to clean up if they want to get some wins again.
2: All right, put your general manager's hat on. What would you add to this team to improve it?
8: Oh, they need a power forward desperately, right? And they've look since that young that's been the position that they wanted, needed, whatever word you want to use to caveat it, right? They tried starting Savonis there because he was their best player, and that makes some sense. You put your best five players on the court when you can, but he's not a natural four, right? It was hard for him to chase around guys on that end of the floor defensively. Right? They, their best season they've had in the Kevin Pritchard GM era is the only season, or one of the only seasons, excuse me, that they had Thaddeus Young at the four, and he was awesome on defense. He was a great connecting piece on offense. He had the size to do it. Even this year's Pacers team has a lot of success when O'Shea sets in the game off the bench or with the starters, wherever he ends up playing, because he's so natural at that position. So if I'm the Pacers' decision-makers in some way, and I think this has been reported by many people, you know, they, they want a four, they need a four that can either fit in with the starting five as a four and give them a little more size or just give them more depth at that position. Because currently they're playing some guards or some tinier forwards at that spot a lot of the time, and that's not quite tenable long-term, especially if they're going to be a playoff team.
1: Tony East joining us via the Motor Shop and Fisher's hotline and the Motor You can follow him on Twitter at T East NBA. Tony, I know that you especially are going to leave no stone unturned as you continue to follow the Pacers' beat and look at what is going to happen towards the deadline, but. Uh, uh, despite me wanting, when he was drafted, a go-ga-go go chant to eventually establish at Cambridge Fieldhouse. Never came to fruition for the big man, and now Yahoo Sports, in a, an article you referenced, uh, saying that if there is a big man to be traded, it most likely could be Goga Batadze. Uh, is that a similar feel you have, and, and is there interest uh, in
8: general in the 23-year-old? That just makes a lot of sense to me, Like even beyond what he has or hasn't done on the court. Just looking contractually at him, right? if you're the Pacers and you... Have this new long-term thinking approach that you talked about this offseason and you know you're in year one of whatever you want to call this a rebuild a retool a new project whatever you want to call what they're doing you know and anyone on an expiring contract you at least have to think about their future instead of losing them for nothing and Patadze is on an expiring contract and sure he can be a restricted free agent but he's their you know fourth big right now and it's not looking like minutes will be there for him anytime soon especially if they keep turner so even beyond any you know rotation minutes that he is or isn't getting and anything like that or him developing into certain type of player, you know, it just makes sense for them to explore what deals could be like for him. And I think Fisher's report called out that you know they would work together with the days representation to, if, if the right opportunity was there and that go get, not, not necessarily wanting to take G league assignments to get minutes, right. He's only played in five games since, simber started so all the context shows that he's really not a part of their current plans even nonetheless their future plans at his current age so that that pick did not turn out uh the way they, they had hoped when they made it and uh they have other bigs on the team both some at his age some like miles turner who are you know their starter and look like they want to keep him potentially uh it would just make sense that they would uh look to move him or you know try to find a situation where he could play as for where you know look at any of the teams that uh, either don't have a quality backup big, like San Antonio, for example, who's been, you know, Gorgie Jang's been getting a lot of minutes for them off the bench. They waived him and then brought him back on a 10-day. Uh, he That could be a fit, for example, or Charlotte doesn't have the greatest big man rotation. They play a lot of Nick Richards and Mark Williams. A team like that that maybe has some minutes for him, especially as a young player who – He's about to enter restricted free agency, but it's tough, right? He doesn't play enough to build a lot of value, so it's hard to say what any team would be willing to you know, clear a spot for him or really want to give up something for him. But that said, I'm sure he would like to go somewhere where he could potentially play a little bit more than he is.
2: Yeah, but what are you going to get for him? I mean, that trade isn't going to be a difference maker in any way.
8: No, no, I don't think that's a trade to get something necessarily. I think that's more okay, you know, this guy's not in our plans. We can get him somewhere that makes more sense for him and maybe, you know, open a roster spot or get a a very, very protected second-round pick that they can use in a different deal, right? It's not necessarily about getting something, but more so the flexibility it would provide.
2: If you had to put a sizable wager down, is this Pacers a playoff team or not?
8: Man, it's tough. I mean, I don't think they're one of the best six teams in the East. You know, the sixth best team is the Knicks, who have already beaten them twice this year, and uh, they're close I think You know, at their best they've beaten some very good teams right? Boston, New Orleans already this season um, and Cleveland you know, they've beaten some good teams they, they looked the part but when the game would slow down in the postseason and you know, as time goes on and some of these rookie wall moments maybe happen with some of their younger guys I think they're probably just outside that mix right now I think they're probably closer to the 7-8-9 range in the East and that puts you in the play-in which means you're you know a coin flip or so from the playoffs but I'd say right now they're just outside of that top 8 in the Eastern Conference
1: Tony, Brian asked you this earlier, but you look at the importance of these next couple of games, not just this road trip, but just in general, when you have matchups against the Bulls, the Bucks again, the Suns, the Nuggets in this stretch as well. For where this team is at and the balancing act of trying to be a playoff team and potentially going the other way. These offensive struggles with Tyrese Halliburton have been evident, but McConnell had a great game last night, a career high for him, I believe, uh, by halftime, and then Miles Turner drops 30. Who do you need to step up on offense as these tough road trips and then the rest of this meat and potatoes of the January schedule unfold to keep yourself afloat in the playoff race?
8: Yeah, my answer is Andrew Nimbard, definitely, right? The guy who is directly replacing your star at the starting point guard spot. And look, he... He not only is playing bigger minutes, but he's playing a totally different role for the Pacers right now, right? Like, he was playing off the ball all the time. And, you know, if you look at his stats, like, he shoots the ball – really well when he plays with Tyrese Halbert. Makes like 60% of his twos and 40% of his threes, and those numbers drop significantly when he plays without Tyrese Halbert, right? And so he has had to change the way he's played, not only just his role, right, but the way he gets shots, the openness of those shots, and he has not been hitting them. His decision-making, especially with his shooting, has not been very crisp these couple games. I think he went 2-for-16 against Atlanta last week and has got 2-for-9 and 3-for-9 in the 2 games since His passing is still really good. Like, when he gets in the paints or when he sees an open teammate or reads the play, he is pretty good, especially for a rookie at getting the ball to to the right person at the right time and all that sort of stuff you need a point guard to do but his scoring has not been there his self-creation has not been there and he could step up and just give them another on the ball threat that you know makes life a little easier for Matherin and turner and healed on offense as well as adding to his threat level when he's not just a passer right he's basically been just that for them these last couple of games that would really help them ball handling is so important especially for young teams that need organization and you no, know, they have 15 turnovers and can't quite get the self the self creation they need from their point guard spot. They're not going to win many games without Tyreke Elbert.
2: I can't think of many second round picks that end up being in a starting lineup. Can you? Like no, Nebhart?
8: Very rare. It's very rare. Yeah, he, he has been such a good story for this team, right? And especially on defense. Like usually rookies are really bad defenders in the NBA, quite frankly. And the fact that he can read the game and time his swipes with his hands and stay in front of guys and, you know, stick with the scouting report. And he's been awesome on that end of the floor. That is so rare. And you know, finally the praise has, has on a national level kind of reached like, oh, wow. you know He's really good that they got with this 31st pick in the draft. And yes, it's super rare that second round picks even get minutes, you know, in their first season, nonetheless start. So he, he's been a revelation for this team.
1: Tony, I know that Brian already made you put on the general manager hat, but if you're looking at, where moves might happen buddy healed was a name that early on upon his arrival it's like okay this is maybe a, a season or two at most or season and a half or so and then he's going to get dealt if turner is reaching an extension or the belief is that there's an extension going to be made there and you're at the point of healed being 30 you know in a couple of years you're going to have to make a decision on him Where, if anywhere, outside of Bataze, are there legitimate assets for these Pacers to try to add another piece to still compete this year or get themselves younger or whatever avenue that Kevin Pritchard wants to take? If Heald and Turner are off the board, where's the direction at the deadline for this team?
8: Yeah, Heald's an interesting spot because he's not an expiring deal. They don't have to rush into anything if they like him, and he's... And, you know, this is maybe the best he's played over the course of a full season in his career up there with 2018-19. So, if you have know, Goga's not fetching you know, anything, what are the moves, right? Like, how can they get better? That's a good question. And the answer is the draft picks, right? They are loaded on them in the upcoming draft. They've got their own, which right now is going to be, you know, I think 18 to 20 range last time I checked. and. They've got Cleveland's and Boston's, which are both in the bottom five of the first round. But they also, if things break their way, have Houston's second-round pick. But only if it's in the top two of the second round. I'm not going to get into all the protections. It's insane and not worth the time of explaining on the radio. But (laughs) there's a chance that if things break their way and Houston remains one of the two worst teams in the league, they would have... Four top 32 picks, right? And given what the Pacers have and what it looks like they will have next year, even if the even if they trade both Turner and Hill, for example, what they would have next year, like they don't have room for four rookies who need minutes, right? So those picks, it seems like, would be the things that you'd look at for them to try to find their upgrades, right? Can they trade three of them for somebody pretty good? Can they trade two of them for somebody who's kind of good? You know, that sort of deal seems like the thing that would make the most sense for them given what they have, what they need, and the fact that they, they, they can't bring in that many players next year. Maybe they end up dealing them for future picks at the time of the draft if they can't find the right deal. But it just doesn't make any sense for them to have that young of a team if they're trying to be better now, and especially if they keep in Turner. So I would look for those to be something that you know they, they would try to move if they look for upgrades.
1: To clarify that point, are those picks in the kind of treasure chest of picks that they have, are those assets they are looking more towards moving up in – June's draft or utilizing as bargaining chips the deadline?
8: Yeah, I think it would depend on, right, the next couple of weeks, honestly. Sure. You know, if they, if they reach February 4th, whatever date they mark on the calendar as their decision date, I don't even know if that's a thing that they have, but you get the <laughs> idea. You know, if they, if they figure out the timing and they say, okay, you know, we, we've lost too many games in this stretch without our best player, It's you know, the Knicks are whatever tw- – five six games ahead of us now we can't get to to seed. you know maybe then they decide that they'll try to move up in the draft with them and add one more really young piece but if they're you know right in the thick of that six seven eight mix and think they can make the postseason or make waves in the plane perhaps then you know they would say okay let's try to move some of these first and help right now and make the playoffs this year and then build on that team in the future because postseason experience is valuable right every time they have a game with a playoff style atmosphere Carlisle called it out to us he called it out to the players he lets everybody know that this is what it's going to be like they have a lot of guys who have not played in the playoff game and I think that experience would be pretty valuable for this young team
1: Tony always appreciate your work uh, of course you can find your work on uh, all Pacers on Sports Illustrated um, and Locked On Pacers as well as their site but also on the podcast anything else you want to plug for we bid farewell Great.
8: No, that's great. Thank you, Jimmy. Much
1: appreciate Appreciate it. you, Tony. Thanks for taking the time. Yep. Thanks, Tony. Thank you, guys. That is Tony East of Sports Illustrated. You can follow him on Twitter at t east nba. Always nice to get his perspective on the Pacers. They try to, as Brian mentioned, navigate through these waters and find their identity if they're really a playoff team this year or if they're closer towards still a lottery club and maybe a piece or two away. We're going to step away here on the Fan Midday Show. When we come back we will share a quote from a quarterback that's on the potential free agent market or on the potential destination market for a new home next year and where their mentality is at in terms of playing next season. That and more after this on the Fan Midday Show, 93.5107.5 The Fan.
0: Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclib 200mg at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you.
3: 93.5 and 107.5, The Fan.
2: We're back in the drivehubler.com studio on the Fan Midday Show. I'm Brian Hammons, along with Jimmy Cook and our producer, James Adams. And Jimmy, you keep saying
1: he's behind the ones and the twos. You got to you gotta school me on this radio lingo. What's that mean? Just lingo behind the board. He's operating our our different mic channels. In this case, it's okay. it's more than just ones and twos at this point. But he's he's keeping us in check. He's keeping us afloat. He's he's the captain of our ship right now. Yes, Brian. he is. And we're not sinking. Doing a great job, is James. It's so, good to have him in. You, nice tease
2: going into that break. Appreciate you. Thank so you. So what, what's what's the quote?
1: So the quote, and you brought up another one to me as well, but the quote that I saw Aaron Rodgers taking some time with Pat McAfee show today in regards to where his decision is going to be at. Rodgers obviously under contract and his name is going to be floated out as a potential trade piece if he tries to force his way out of Green Bay, but in regards to if he's playing or not next year, he said he was not ready mentally or emotionally to make a decision on the future. He needs some time right now To get his mind right, he's either all in or he's out. And then the other, as you brought up to me during the break, quarterback that is going to be in a very unique situation because of the lack of extension provided by the Baltimore Ravens is Lamar Jackson. He mentioned uh, in an Instagram post on Monday well, when you have something good, you don't play with it. You don't take chances losing it. You don't neglect it. When you have something good, you pour into it. You appreciate it because when you take care of something good, that good thing takes care of you too. I really feel bad for Lamar Jackson because I think he is a top three, top four quarterback in this league right now. I would put, I'd probably put him at fourth. I'd probably put Mahomes, Allen and Burrow ahead of him. But again, I'm willing to hear that argument any way you spin it. That being said, he's still at the top of his position and, And the fact that the Ravens didn't give him an extension and the worst thing that could happen from a turmoil standpoint is they tag him this year, and you have to deal with that drama that comes with the franchise tag. I don't know what the future holds for Lamar Jackson, but in the day and age of social media, you have to just gobble up everything, and that is an interesting nugget, at least in terms of his mindset right now, heading into what could be a tumultuous offseason for Baltimore. There's no way he's not with Baltimore next year. I don't think Baltimore is going to let him go anywhere. That, right. To answer your question, like I'm not no. saying he holds out, but if I'm Lamar, I would do everything that I can as a player to try to negotiate an extension or get one to happen – but we've seen players, most notably Le'Veon Bell, a couple of years ago, try to play hardball with ownership. And the NFL's not like the NBA because of the franchise tag. You can ultimately tag them at, uh, I can't remember if it's top four, whatever the percentage mark is of your salaries across the league. But you would make a fair wage, but you're not getting that long-term security that a lot of key position players want. And i got to be honest, if I'm a Baltimore fan or if I'm in that front office, you do what you got to do, but there's a lot of unnecessary headaches that might unfold if you're not able to reach a long-term extension with him.
2: He already turned down a pretty attractive right, extension. Right, right, And he bet on himself, yep. which is fine. I, I'm all for that.
1: But it really didn't work. No. You look at uh, a side-by-side comparison, if you will. Again, they're two different sports, but Lamar Jackson's decision to bet on himself, and then most notably in baseball this past year, Aaron Judge's decision to bet on himself. Again, Aaron Judge stayed healthy for the whole year. I don't want to get too much in the weeds in that, but you have an ultimate career year and then the riches follow it. Lamar did not have that this year, couldn't stay healthy at times. Would I be comfortable still paying him long-term money? Yes, but I'm not comfortable paying him the kind of money that you've seen Kyler Murray, that you've seen Patrick Mahomes make. I'm just not comfortable with his health status doing that if I'm running the Ravens. So Aaron Rodgers, getting back to Aaron and his situation, obviously
2: going to take some time to see how he feels. You think there would be a lot of interest in Aaron Rodgers outside of
1: Green Bay? I do, because I still thought, similarly to Brady, not that Rodgers showed his age, but it looked like a flawed offense at times this year. I mean, they were on the mat and had to claw their way back, nearly got there. I think if I am a team that feels like you are a quarterback away I am okay with unloading a a, a couple of first-round picks or a couple of assets to go get a guy like Aaron Rodgers. Like, we talked about Brady to Miami. I'd take Aaron
2: Rodgers over Brady any day.
1: And, and I'm, I'm I'm with right. you on that, with where their ages are, and I've always thought that, again, this isn't a hot take. This is just my belief. Set the rings aside. They're great. They're awesome. I've always thought Aaron Rodgers was a better at-the-position quarterback, whether it's just from arm strength, whether it's IQ. I've always preferred Rodgers. Again, that's just my opinion on the matter. If I'm the Dolphins and I think that Tua with all his concussions, those starting to rack up, that I need to go in a different direction, yes, you get Brady for no draft capital at all, but if I feel like I'm a game-changing player away, I'd knock on that door. I'm sure there's other franchises around the league that would knock on that door and pick up the phone to try to bring him into town. Yeah, a couple older
2: quarterbacks with big decisions to make, Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers, and who knows what's going to happen with Lamar Jackson, but there's, he's going to be with Baltimore next year.
1: Yeah, I mean, if I'm if I'm the Ravens, I'm tagging him. But if you're answering phone calls, there's been the, the butt of the Colts right now. There's a number of different butts and jokes there. But the ultimate kind of criticism to them has been this retread quarterback after retread quarterback after retread quarterback. This is a pipe dream. It's never going to happen. But if there are trade offers that ever unfold for Lamar Jackson... I'm looking into that if I'm Indianapolis. Oh, no question. Because that's the old, of all the names, Carr, Rogers, Brady, I don't think that any of them with their age, and I know Jackson has his health concerns, instantly make the Colts a better team. If you bring somebody with Jackson's mobility and still his, even though it's not as sharp as Mahomes, Allen, or uh, Burrow, you bring his ability as a passer, it makes the Colts a dynamic threat. I would love to have a John and Taylor, Lamar Jackson-led Sign up, but again, that's a pipe dream. Baltimore's not going to do it. They're going to tag him at, at worst.
2: You know the quarterback that really interests me that's not getting a lot of talk yet, and I think that might change come combine time, is Anthony Richardson. This guy is big. He's 6'4", 238, rocket arm. Now, granted, I'll admit, I fall in love with big arms. I love arm talent. Um, but the knock on him is, well, I've heard scouts say, this guy could be one of the best ever. Or he could be Jamarcus Russell, right? He could be a bust, and but and I don't think the Colts will go that direction because we've heard Chris Ballard say, "I'm not sure he's willing to risk his future by gambling on Anthony Richardson, whether or not he's going to be a a great quarterback in the NFL." Man, I like him though. I'd I'd be I'd I'd give that
1: one some serious thought because talent wise, he might be the best guy in the class. I. To your you said something that is my answer to why I'm a little hesitant on that and why I don't think it ultimately happens for the Colts where they're at. I don't know that I would feel comfortable if I'm Chris Ballard with where they're positioned. If they were a little bit further down in the pecking order, that'd be my answer. But but to your to a point you brought in to, to Joel earlier today, Brian, we talk about big time games as they are for for scouting moments and making those measurables for where you rank somebody on your draft board, but there's surprises that happen along the combine too, oh, like every and, and, year. and you referenced that in the conversation with Joel that maybe a player like Richardson nails the interview process, blows people away, and they feel like there's a there's a project there. I, I'm not arguing on him as a draft choice personally. I'd rather have, I'd rather trade up and go get a sure thing. So, if you don't trade, if you stay stay at number four and
2: somebody jumps you, somebody trades up, and the top three names, which are the top three names now Bryce Young, Will Levis, and CJ Stroud are taken, do you take Anthony Richardson at four?
1: So, you're saying they're all off the board? They're all gone. Somebody trades
2: up ahead of us, of the Colts. You're drafting fourth. The top three quarterbacks are taken one, two, three. Does Chris Ballard take Anthony Richardson?
1: I don't think he would. and I don't think so either. I, I don't think he would be, be, th- because he's already shown. And this is what if Jim Irsay is the owner so he can make the decisions he want. We all know this. But if Ursay is the puppeteer behind all of this on the coaching side of things, who is to say that if Jim Ursay is going to be as involved as he has been the last two years, he doesn't have a quarterback that he wants in mind. And may, maybe it is a Richardson. May, maybe it, it's it's a dark horse off the list that isn't being viewed that way. That's why it makes things so complicated from a from our standpoint of trying to analyze what they're going to do. Because if they get leapfrogged, then they're in this position of young, Stroud and Levis are off the board. I don't know. I wouldn't roll the dice on Richardson. So I you, would look at who might, else is there, and I might I would. you might be able to trade back and still get him. And, and that's the only scenario capital. I'm okay with that, right? Because because some people don't like trading back. I don't want to trade back if young. Or Stroud are there. No, no, no. But if they're off the board, you're right. But if they're off the board and you want to move back because you honestly don't trust the other quarterbacks, I'm not mad about that. Like everybody is clamoring and I've been there get a young quarterback, get somebody to develop. That's fine, but don't take somebody just for the sake of taking a young quarterback, and Ballard has made it clear in his public interviews he's not going to be the type of person no. to just take somebody for the sake it of taking It scares him to death yeah. to
2: draft a quarterback. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see who all works out at the Combine. There's a very good chance that C.J. Stroud and Bryce Young, maybe even Will Levis, don't even work out. They'll come in for the interviews and do that kind of stuff. Now, if I'm Levis and I've got a chance to move from – the third-ranked quarterback to maybe number 1 or number 2 I'd I'd work out Anthony Richardson certainly should work out to display his prodigious physical talents uh but it'll be interesting to see who does work out at the combine
1: that decision making always fascinates me because again I can't put myself in those shoes but if I try to imagine it if I was at the level of if I'm at the level of a guy that knows he's getting taken top 3 regardless of what I do afterwards I'm fine with keeping things to the closed shelf, Absolutely. have your own pro day and roll on with it. But if I'm somebody that is maybe fringe top five or I'm a quarterback, I maybe mean, not necessarily uh, just like Richardson, but I'm a quarterback that that wants to be in that conversation. Like, like Tanner McKee, for instance, out of Stanford. Like if I'm a guy that is right there in my mind, I'm going to go to the combine. I'm going to go to those. I'm going to have my pro day, but I'm going to go to the combine and put myself back on center stage to try to draw more second-guessing by scouts and end up at the destination I want to end up at. Anthony Richardson,
2: I think, has the most to gain at the combine because right now he's clearly the fourth quarterback by a long shot. But he could move up. I mean, he really could move. I go back to the Jeff George throwing 80 yards off one knee and Jim Irsay falling in love going, that's my guy. Right. Right, You know, (laughs) so I think he had to trade up to get the number one pick and got Jeff George, who still has the best arm I've ever seen on a quarterback.
1: But but to that concept of believing in your scout team, believing in a quarterback, that's what I want to see from this regime, if nothing else, at least on draft day. I know at the end of the day, this is a franchise and a fan base that is hungry to get back to winning ways. And we've stressed this on the show at times over the last couple of weeks that, Even if they get the right guy this year, there's no guarantee this is a a one-year fix and they're right back into contention. This is likely a multi-year rebuild, but I just want, even if it's it's sold to me, I want confidence in that general manager spot. I want them to find their guy in this year's draft and stand by their decision. Because at the end of the day, you can be a general manager as long as you want. At some point, you're going to have a cornerstone moment of your career. Is this draft Chris Ballard's? It very well could be it, it better if be. the chips fall. And and if you're a Colts fan, yeah, it better be. Because if you don't get a quarterback, what do you have? You got nothing. You're gonna bring Derek Carr in here and try to well, redo I'm, another reach. Like I I'm not down for that. And I, I can't see another underperforming like Carr had moments out in Las Vegas slash Oakland, but I'm not trying to have somebody's unless it's a real proven talent like we talk about somebody as electric as Lamar Jackson. Well, then you don't need to draft right, a quarterback. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> then you're focused on uh, on somebody on the offensive line or a wide receiver weapon. But I just, I don't see any other answer to this puzzle for the Colts than taking a quarterback in the draft. The only... And start him immediately? Because if, if you don't, what a are your options? Weeks ago, if I you don't start him immediately, you got nobody right. to play behind. If you If you don't start him immediately, I think you're looking at a... Look at a stopgap guy, and that's somebody that's not Derek on the team Carr. right now. Carr could be that, and that's what I've thought too. But the money you would pay him, like I think that if someone tries to go get Derek Carr, it, he does have an out after this year. The cap it, I think, is only $24 million. So maybe not. Maybe that does work, but it'd be somebody like that. It would be somebody for one year. I think of the, I know Rodgers did it for a couple seasons, but Mahomes did it one year. Uh, Malik Willis, I know it's not a great example right now, but he's doing it in Tennessee. That's been the more modern approach is let a guy sit for a year and then throw him out there.
2: Or you can do like they did Peyton Manning and say, you know, go out and take your lumps. Baptism by fire, yeah. sink or swim. Go yep. lead the league in yep. interceptions yep. and then
1: get better. Yep. Trevor Lawrence and Jacksonville. And that, again, that panned out to this point. They're in the divisional round. So, yeah, I'm, I just think that the only – I don't know how I want to phrase this, but the only counterpunch that could take away the momentum the Colts have going into this draft is being complacent, standing still, and somebody trading up and jumping them for one of those quarterbacks, I which men- is very possible. I mentioned Peyton Manning. Did you watch any of the Manning cast last night? I did. Did you see his
2: reactions when they were yes what, when he was missing the extra what, points? What, Peyton <laughs> had some PTSD.
1: Oh with, with kickers as he was pacing around his studio, yeah, all he could think of was Mike Vanderjagt. Yeah, exactly. The, <laughs> the the bless his heart after the fourth one though was just had me die and him putting the football in front of his face. Dan Campbell trying to maintain his composure. Yeah, I've I've loved the Manning cast uh, the last two years, but that was. It was especially funny as, again, a meltdown that didn't matter. But four extra points that back to back to back to back was just absolutely baffling.
2: I watch the Manning cast if it's a game I really don't care about. Sure. But if it's a game that I want to watch, I don't. I don't. I watch sure. the broadcast. Sure.
1: I feel like that. They, Aikman doesn't have enough, and you you and I both know this, having, you know, in different facets working in that Aikman doesn't have enough time to just sit back and and orchestrate exactly what's happening because there is a, a give and take of Buck setting up the play and Aikman diving into what happened as a play-by-play to analysts do. I kind of enjoy that back and forth, not just of Peyton and Eli, but just having what would be effectively two analysts breaking down what happens. And then the guest list does it for me sometimes, too, Brian. Yeah, like, right. they, like, they had Deion Sanders last night. Like, I'm I, I'm all for that when they Omaha Productions sends out the tweet, and I'm like, oh, who's on tonight? Okay, I'll, I'll tune in. I think, and I've said this, Peyton, Peyton
2: is one of the few athletes that could step in and do Jack, uh, Joe Buck's job. Sure. He could do play-by-play. Yes. Play. yes. So if you put Peyton and Eli in the booth, I think that'd be real interesting. I, I agree. I mean, that'd be a lot of fun. It'd be something different, but... You know, I, and I like I like Buck. I, you know, a lot of people don't like Joe Buck. I do, uh, and I like Troy Aikman. But I think that'd be a pretty cool gamble to put those two in the booth.
1: And and I think that ultimately, and, and as a as a play by play broadcaster that you know is 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 still going through the grind myself, like that's always a little fearful because the day they let the analysts do everything is the day that jobs aren't really there anymore. But I do like where it's at right now in that blend of there are people that. I'm one of them that appreciate the Joe Buck and Troy Aikman tag team That was a great acquisition by ESPN, but to also be able to maybe even take a quarter and you see a guest that you want to listen to with Peyton and Eli flip over that whole mesh of getting different eyeballs on it has been a great job of Night football the last couple of years. And again, if it's a game I don't care about, I'll watch the Manning cast. But if it's
2: the Colts or, or a game like last night that I really want to watch, I watch the right. broadcast. Yeah. We need to take a break. You are listening to The Fan Midday Show from the drivehubler.com studio. Brian Hammons, Jimmy Cook, James Adams with you.
3: We'll be back to wrap things up in a moment. 93.5 and 107.
0: Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you.
3: Five, The Fan.
2: You don't have any country music to bring us back, do you? I haven't heard any country in bumps coming in here. We're back on the Fan Midday Show, and as a longtime listener of the shows in this time slot, I'm a fan of this segment. The Jay Cook Plays of the
3: Day. What do you got? The Jay Cook Plays of the Day.
8: This is me, all right? I'm not a athlete. This is my way. This is how I win.
1: Today's Plays of the Day looking to rebound after... Going down with the ship. Wanted to back Tom Brady one last time last night. Did not pan out that way. So we start first in the world of college basketball. I agree with a lot of what Nick Gardner said today in regards to the Bulldogs' Not just at home, but needing to continue their winning ways. Getting seven tonight against Creighton. I'm going to scoop the seven there for the Bulldogs. Also going to go in-state as well. Lay five on the Fighting Irish Notre Dame as they host Florida State. Closing things out in the NBA. Going to lay five and a half on the Brooklyn Nets. As they are in San Antonio against the Spurs. As we mentioned, 0-2 yesterday. 0-2 on the week. Plays on Twitter at the J. Cook. Now that's where we differ in terms of other hosts
2: of this show i don't gamble much i don't i mean i i do i do i've got all the apps and i but it's five dollars i mean i just (laughs) i just don't i'm not willing to to gamble the amount that would make it real interesting sure
1: and i am to start the season i'm kind of that same way i put a budget within my uh sportsbook account particularly the start of the nfl season hopefully let that build and then Particularly during the playoffs, I'm going to take a little bit more risk. But the most I'd ever spend any game, fifty, maybe maybe 110 at most, and that's only once we get to the playoffs. I like to let everything build first, and then then go from there. Now, my son,
2: who is 28, loves to bet parlays, trying to hit it big. Oh, put I put a little bit of money for to try to win a lot of yes. money. Well, that's a sucker bet, right?
1: Well, that's what everybody says, and I still love a good parlay every now and again because it that low-risk, high-reward type deal. If you hit your first two or three, it's pretty exhilarating and can be a fun way to spend a Sunday watching, whatever, college basketball or the NFL. Uh, But also, if you lose early and you keep trying to chase on parlays, yeah, it can turn into a sucker bet. It's all about where you place it, but when Gambling first came here about, what, four years ago in October, I was always about the parlay. I really liked the... And then you start to learn, hey, I'm probably better off just betting one of these versus trying to pray that six of these things happen, so...
2: Has the legalization of, of betting on sports changed the way people watch sports? Oh, absolutely.
1: I I know people that, as simple as, and I understand you're probably walking a line between, oh, man, do they have a problem? Or, or <laughs> oh, they're there. But, but all the people I'm referencing here bet responsibly. But I have a buddy that he likes baseball, but now he'll make it a really thrilling afternoon for baseball because he'll have seven different bets out there of like 5 or $10 an interval. But... He has a model that he follows, and he it's it's drawn his interest back to some of your slower-paced sports. And then, like, I'm not saying that a big event like the World Cup doesn't matter, because it does. But I found myself even more intrigued at certain matches because I'd be betting for this guy to score or for uh, certain things that happen in the first 90 minutes. So, yeah, I, I think so, to an extent, in a very positive... Well, I don't want to say positive from bet responsibly, all that fun stuff, you know, bet within your means. But... It's clearly done well for the sports world because everybody keeps coming back. It's influenced more in these sports shows. Everybody has a segment in some regard like we do here. And, yeah, it absolutely has affected the consumerism of, of sport for sure. What's the weirdest sport you've ever bet on? Uh, it got weird during COVID. We bet on some some ping pong. It got it got it got weird <laughs> to invent the plays of the day during COVID. Um, and in your wheelhouse, I love betting a top ten or top fifteen finish on the tour. It's oh no it, no, those you, are my favorite bets. Yeah, to make. betting golf is not yep.
2: is not that difficult. I had a buddy that used to go work with the golf channel. He would go into the equipment trailer mm-hmm. at the beginning of the week and find out who's hanging out in there because you could bet matchups. so and so against so and so, and he would go see who was hanging out in the equipment trailer because they're searching, they're searching <laughs> for answers, and he would bet against that guy. And did very well.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you, to your point, whether you're around the sport, whether you're a viewer that follows it the right way, golf is one of the, I don't want to say most lucrative to bet, but it can be if you have a pattern and know how to read certain things like that, like matchups, like hole-by-hole play, and then, of course, your flyers when you're looking for top 10 or top 20 finishes. Golf, I think, is got upped even more so when you add gambling into that as well.
2: I know we need to wrap things up, but uh, I've had fun today. Thank it's you for holding Thank you for holding my hand and getting me through this. And <laughs> I think we had a better day than the Cowboys kicker last night.
1: We, we definitely had a better day than Brett Maher. You achieved your goal for sure. Looking forward to doing it again tomorrow.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. We'll be back again tomorrow. I'll be in this chair. Jimmy will be in his chair. And uh, Thank you for listening, and thank you for our callers that called in today. 239-1070 is our number. Write that down, because we'll be back here again tomorrow on the Fan Midday show, Show. For Jimmy Cook and James Adams, I'm Brian Hammons. We'll see you again tomorrow.